We're back here with Chase and Josh at Factor Fantasy. That's Chase, I'm Josh. We are here to give you part two of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, where we will be tackling chapters number six through number 12. We got a lot coming at you today, a lot of detail, a lot of big moments. Uh, if you thought last week was good, this week's just as good. We've got a ton of stuff to cover today. I'm really excited about it, too, because as we mentioned last week, this is going to be a 10-episode arc on just this book because of how we got to split it up with the differences between the first movie and then at the end with the second movie on top of it being the very very last book in the series so we got a lot of good things to look forward to folks because we've got a lot of time to work and tackle everything that Deathly Hallows has to offer so uh, because we have so much to get through here I'll just give you guys a quick brief overview if you remember from last week on my page over here you can see that I've got kind of the same thing if you're on the YouTube you can kind of take a look at what I've got as my visuals but if you remember I had Mad-Eye Moody last week he ended up dying right so we took him out so we're left with just I dwindled down all my Funko Pops from down just to just the chosen one we've got just him standing there in the center between the novel on one side and the film on the other side so all my visuals look pretty mundane because we have slowly whittled our way down to who we've got left and you know what we've got a lot more surprises in terms of Deathly Hallows of who's gonna come who's gonna go there's a lot of things that we're gonna cover so with that being said I'll turn it over to Chase he can kind of discuss a little bit about what he's got going on and we'll get into it after that yeah pretty much the same on my end um, I do have one uh, significant piece right under Hermione Granger here <laughs> that we'll talk about today uh, I did win fantasy basketball so I won fantasy football and fantasy basketball this year so two in one year uh, so that was pretty cool uh, to prove I actually do know something about football versus everyone thinks I'm just on a fantasy show. <laughs> so I uh, get the pun there. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, man, I'm excited for today's episode. It's going to be pretty awesome. Um, you know, it, it definitely, especially ending, you know, we kind of leave on that kind of cliffhanger action packed moment that we'll get to today. But a lot of good detail today. Um, and it's just building and building and building for the fourth quarter here so uh i'll let you take us away man let's get a malice in the chalice let's get this thing started got a plan brother let me go ahead and cheers you here cheers awesome and kind of what i always do before we jump right into the books is i give a quick little recap of stuff that we covered last week so if you guys remember we started out in uh, the malfoy manor with the death eaters having that meeting they ended up murdering uh, the Muggle Studies teacher, Charity Burbage. From there, we go to the Dursleys. We finally said goodbye to them. Uh, we're not going to really hear or see from them anymore from this point forward. Uh, from there, we had what's called the Seven Potters, where they all took the Polyhedra's Potion. And they had a great plan. They were going to leave earlier than expected to try to outsmart the Death Eaters. Unfortunately, Snape knew when they were actually moving. And as soon as they get into the air, they get attacked. We kind of went through that awesome action-packed chapter where they had a battle in the sky and Voldemort finds the real Harry and tries to kill him with Malfoy's wand, Lucius Malfoy's wand, and Harry's wand does that weird thing where it acted of its own accord and shot some golden flames. And uh, they, they ended up getting to the burrow safely. Well, not everybody. So we learned that uh, George got his ear taken off by Snape with the Sectum Sempra curse, and we lost Mad-Eye Moody, and we lost Hedwig. Or Hedwig yeah. Uh, we lost two fan favorites in terms of the characters. They are no longer with us. Rest in peace to the owl. Rest in peace to the warrior. 
actually the chapter was called the fallen warrior so that was pretty cool and then the last kind of thing that we left off with is that vision that harry had kind of reopening that that mind connection you have with voldemort of him torturing olivander because olivander had given poor information about using a different wand to be able to overtake harry and so that's kind of where we lead in today that was the last thing that we discussed last week this week like i said we're going to be tackling chapter 6 through chapter 11 my apologies not chapter 12 like i mentioned earlier it's gonna be chapter 6 through chapter 11 and uh, we're going to start here with the first chapter, The Ghoul in Pajamas. That's chapter 6. And so what we're going to do is kind of very similar to how we've been doing it. I'll take a couple of big pieces. Chase will take a couple of big pieces. And we'll work our way through the chapters, discuss it at the end. So with that being said, just to jump right into it, in chapter 6 here on page 86, the first thing I had in terms of like a bullet point note is like Harry is rearing to get into action. But Ron has to kind of remind him that he can't do anything until he turns 17 because of the trace. So you guys remember I did a little interesting fact on the trace about how it can detect underage magic in a certain vicinity. They don't know exactly who casts the spell, but they, they'll know if underage wizard, underage magic was used by a wizard in the area. So uh, that was kind of cool that we learned that there is a theory saying that the trace comes on you when you enter the Hogwarts Express, but then there is some sort of a conflict or backlash over that theory because of the homeschool witches and wizards. In either, in either event, that Harry can't do anything because he's still under 17 at this point in time. Going forward from that on page 87, Ron actually warns Harry that Mrs. Weasley is going to try to interrogate him about what he's up to. Like, where they're going to start going, why they're dropping out of Hogwarts. And remember, Dumbledore left Harry a mission and you can't tell anyone, just Hermione and Ron are the only ones that he said it's cool to confide in. And to keep it a secret from everybody else. So, we're going to kind of actually... Uh, <laughs> I'll read that a little bit. I'm going to take on page 88. I'm going to read from the top of the page down through uh, this little part here when Mrs. Weasley and Harry have that conversation about what they're going to be doing if they're not going to be going to Hogwarts. So starting here, it says, May I ask why you are abandoning your education? Said Mrs. Weasley. Well, uh, Dumbledore left me stuff to do, mumbled Harry. Ron and Hermione know about it, and they want to come too. What sort of stuff? I'm sorry, I can't... Well, frankly, I think Arthur and I have a right to know, and I'm sure Mr. and Mrs. Granger would agree, said Mrs. Weasley. And Harry had been afraid of the concerned parent attack. He forced himself to look directly into her eyes, noticing as he did so that they were precisely the same shade of brown as Ginny's, and this did not help. Dumbledore didn't want anyone else to know, Mrs. Weasley. I'm sorry. Ron and Hermione don't have to come. It's their choice. I don't see that you have to go either. She snapped, dropping all pretense now. You're barely of age. Any of you. It's utter nonsense. If Dumbledore needed work doing, he had the whole order at his command. Harry, you must have misunderstood him. Probably he was telling you something that he wanted done, and you took it to mean that he wanted you... I didn't misunderstand, said Harry flatly. It's gotta be me. And he handed her the back the single sock he was supposed to be identifying, which was patterned with the gold, golden bulrushes. So right there, he kind of... He tries to tell her as much as he can without actually giving away what it is that they're doing. And from then on, what's about to start happening is you'll see going on to the next page on page 89, Mrs. Weasley is purposely keeping Harry, Ron, and Hermione busy and away from each other so that way they cannot plan their next move. Uh, the next thing I have too on page 90, which is actually really, really important, the borough is now the new headquarters for the Order of the Phoenix. Because since Dumbledore died, 
he was the secret keeper for number 12, Grimald Place. And everyone that Dumbledore confided the location to, now they have also become secret keepers, meaning everyone in the Order, which would give Voldemort and the Death Eaters a lot of opportunities to get the info out of somebody. So they've had to kind of not use Grimald Place at all, and Burroughs become the new headquarters. So I'm actually going to read on uh, the page 90 a little bit about that and kind of take the way down and also a little bit of a foreshadow in this part too so anyways they were often joined by other order members for dinner now because the borough had replaced number 12 grimald place as the headquarters mr weasley had explained that after the death of dumbledore their secret keeper each of the people to whom dumbledore had confided grimald place's location has now become a secret keeper in turn and as there are around 20 of us, that greatly dilutes the power of the Fidelius charm. 20 times as many opportunities for the Death Eaters to get the secret out of somebody, we can't expect to hold it much longer. Then Harry asks, but surely Snape will have told the Death Eaters the address by now. And that's when he replied, well, Mad-Eye set up a couple curses against Snape in case he turns up there again. We hope they'll be strong enough to both keep him out and to bind his tongue if he tries to talk about the place, but we can't be sure... So it would have been insane to keep using the place's headquarters now that its protection has become so shaky. So that kind of was where I'll kind of turn it over to Chase, but just a little bit about that. that it's, it's interesting now because they've had to kind of on the fly figure out a new situation. Think about all the things that the Order's had to deal with. And on top of the Order already not really doing a great job to begin with, every time they go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Death Eaters, the Death Eaters have been kicking their ass up and down the street, right? So it's like, now they, like, on, top of losing, on top of losing Dumbledore, on top of losing Mad-Eye Moody, now they've got to figure out like new headquarter locations. And not to mention, like the Ministry has kind of been infiltrated that we talked about last week. And majority of the Weasleys work in the Ministry, or at least like something affiliated with it. So Mr. Weasley works in that big office there. Bill works for Gringotts. Charlie's doing shit in Romania. Like they're all in high, like a, like ranking positions. And it's very, very tenuous because they know the Weasley's connection to Harry, meaning like they're going to start questioning them. And that's going to come into play really heavy, which will chase will actually take you through where like Hermione and Ron and Harry actually get some time to talk about those exact problems that they could possibly be going after the Weasley's like family and Hermione's family. So with that being said, I'll go ahead and, and uh, turn it over to Chase on page 91, and he'll take it from there for a couple of minutes. Yeah, uh, the next thing I really had was, of course, Bill and Lupin were unable to find Moody's body. Um, and that's, uh, that's huge. So they didn't have a funeral for him because it was too difficult to find where he fell uh, during the confusion of the battle. And um, it's even they even wind up saying that even Hermione mentions at one point, like, you got to think, he even if he did survive, like, he fell thousands of feet. So this really even puts in perspective here because they couldn't find his body at all. Um, and it said, uh, you know, they were just saying even in the Daily Prophet didn't even say anything about Moody dying. So I thought that was pretty significant there. Um, and then as far as on page 91... Uh, Harry starts to ask why he hasn't heard anything in regards to underage magic when he was escaping the Death Eaters. And uh, they wind up telling Harry it's because um, Scrimmageor didn't want Voldemort to seem as powerful or acknowledge that Azkaban had this massive breakout. Uh, so clearly they're trying to keep, you know, that save that public face is really what the ministry is doing. 
uh, definitely feeding off what you just said, Josh. So um, back to then kind of from there, uh, I have this is really on. I can kind of take it from I, I'll read this part, I guess, on on page uh, 93. So Miss Weasley mentions that um, what's left of Sirius bike. Uh, well, Mr. Weasley mentions that what's left of Sirius's bike. Remember, he's putting that back together. Um, I guess because he was going to try to put it back together. I guess, like, is he putting it back together just because it's, like, sentimental value or he, like, really likes it? I guess sentimental value, I guess, right? I, I think it's the opposite. I think it's because he really likes it. Because remember what he used to do before his position now? He was in the misuse of Muggles artifacts object. Like, like they, that was his position. And he made that, like, flying Ford Anglia. So he's probably, like... Because like, he, <laughs> he's, like, really interested in how Muggle stuff works. Like, with the petroleum gas can that they were... Like, he was, like, saying how the brakes worked. So I honestly don't even think it's for sentimental value. I think he's, like, trying to... I think he's really interested in, like, how Muggles <laughs> make certain things work. And he wants to add his own additions to it. Because it was his own additions that... That allowed Hagrid and Harry to escape last week with that big purple flame button that he like would press and that Mr. Weasley added to it. So right. I think he's trying to put it back together because he likes muggle shit. <laughs> I don't know, man. Like... <laughs> <laughs> it makes it makes entirely makes complete sense. Take a shot, everyone. <laughs> Good shit. <laughs> um, so then, uh, kind of on this point, I guess this is kind of when we're starting to dig into the like the really detailed stuff of this chapter but um so from this point here uh this is when i was talking about when they were talking about hermione and and ron and harry were talking about if it was possible that like he might have survived and then hermione was even saying like you know even if he did like he had to fall a thousand feet um and this was that was on page 93 at the bottom um, and then it says, this is when Hermione said, even if the killing curse missed, Mad Eye still fell a thousand feet. Like, that's insane. Like, you're effed. You fall a thousand feet. I don't even, how tall is the astronomy tower? Any idea? Nowhere near a thousand <laughs> feet. Like, the no astronomy tower may be 300 feet. Like, because you think about how tall it is. I used to go cliff jumping out in the gorges in upstate New York. And, like, the highest one I jumped off of was, like, 80 feet. And that was high as shit. Like, 80 feet. Like, you guys yeah. don't think that that's the high as fuck. Now, if you're talking about thousands of feet, that's that's taller than the Empire State Building. Like, you know, and, and so yeah. I'm just saying, like, thousands <laughs> of feet, yeah, there's no shot. And to your point, what he, what he like he was saying is like, well, you know, maybe he used the shield charm. And Hermione reminds Ron, like, hell, he mm -hmm. got his wand blasted out of his hand. Like, he would have just fell. <laughs> He's been screwed. Like, regardless <laughs> if he got hit with a killing curse or he fell, he didn't have his wand to, like, the braces fall. He literally smacked the ground going, like, however fast it is, your full body drops and free falls. So, and then Ron's like, well, fuck. Like, well, yeah. I guess if you guys want him to be dead, fine. And they're like, well, no, it's just be realistic, my man. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Didn't happen. Uh, n definitely. Um, and then from this point, and then I'll turn it back over to you in just a minute, but this is uh, on page 94. I did want to read this part because it's really descriptive, uh, just what's going on in Harry's head as Hermione, you know, being the realistic one, right? Yep. Um, this is the way it's described, which is pretty, pretty brutal. Um, so this is going to be on the third paragraph. So if you go to the third paragraph on page 94, it says, For the first time, Harry imagined Mad-Eye's body broken as Dumbledore's had been. Yet, with one eye still whizzing in its socket, 
he felt a stab of revulsion mixed with a bizarre desire to laugh. Like, that's, like, so messed up. Could you imagine his eye just spinning zoom, everywhere? Zoom, zoom. Yeah. <laughs> that's insane, man. That's crazy stuff. Um, and then from here, so, let's see. So, do you want to take the? Do you want to take it from here? Any yeah. place you want to catch up on? For sure. No, you, uh, you're in the right spot. I, I can take it from here because this is where we're gonna kind of get into that real big detail, like reading a couple pages at a time here with like the plans and how mm-hmm. they're getting ready for everything. So yeah, I, I can, we're in the same exact spot. I, I can pick right up where you left off, my man. Perfect. Awesome. So uh, we're gonna go start on the second paragraph on page ninety-five, and like it's this is like with like. Hermione crying a little bit uh, she goes and he brings her like a like a handkerchief that he helped clean off with one of the spells it's called Turgio so I'll just kind of pick up right after that she goes oh uh, thanks Ron I- I'm sorry she blew her nose and hiccup it's just so awful isn't it R- right after Dumbledore I just never imagined Mad-Eye dying somehow he seemed so tough yeah I know said Ron giving her a squeeze but you know what he'd say to us if he was still here constant vigilance said Hermione mopping her eyes that's right, said Ron, nodding. He'd tell us to learn from what happened to him. What I've learned is not to trust that cowardly little squit Mundungus. Hermione gave a shaky laugh and leaned forward to pick up two more books, and a second later, Ron had snatched his arm back from around her shoulders. She had dropped a monster book of monsters on his foot, and the book had broken free from its restraining belt and snapped viciously at Ron's ankle. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Hermione cried as Harry wrenched the book from Ron's leg and retied it shut. What are you doing with all those books anyways, Ron asked, limping back to his bed. Just deciding which ones to take with us, said Hermione, when we're looking for the Horcruxes. Oh, of course, Ron said, clapping a hand to his forehead. I totally forgot we'll be hunting down Voldemort in a mobile library. Ha ha, said Hermione, looking down at Spellman's syllabary. I wonder, will we need to translate runes? It's possible. I think we better take it to be safe. And she dropped the syllabary onto the larger of the two piles and picked up Hogwarts of History. Listen, said Harry. He had sat up straight. Ron and Hermione looked at him with a similar mixture of resignation and defiance. I know you said after Dumbledore's funeral that you wanted to come with me, Harry began. Here he goes, Ron said to Hermione, rolling his eyes. As we knew he would, she sighed, turning back to the books. You know, I think I will take Hogwarts of history, even for not going back there. I don't think I'd feel right if I didn't have it. Listen, said Harry again. No, Harry, you listen, said Hermione. We're coming with you. That was decided months ago. Years, really. But shut up, Ron advised him. Are you sure you've thought this through, Harry persisted. Let's see, said Hermione, slamming travels with trolls onto the discarded pile with a rather fierce look. I've been packing for days, so we're ready to leave at a moment's notice, which for your information has included doing some pretty difficult magic, not to mention smuggling Mad-Eye's whole stock of Polyjuice Potion right under Ron's mom's nose. I've also modified my parents' memories so that they're convinced that they're really called Wendell and Monica Wilkins, and that their life's ambition is to move to Australia, which they now have done. This is to make it more difficult for Voldemort to track them down and interrogate them about me or you, because unfortunately, I've told them quite a bit about you. Assuming I survive our hunt for the Horcruxes, I'll find Mom and Dad and lift the enchantment, and if I don't, well, I think I've cast a good enough charm to keep them safe and happy. Wendell and Monica Wilkins don't know where they've got a daughter, you see. And Hermione's eyes were swimming with tears again. Ron got back off the bed, put his arms around her once more, and frowned at Harry as though reproaching him for lack of tact. And Harry could not think of anything to say, not the least because it was highly unusual for Ron to be teaching anyone else tact. I, Hermione, I'm sorry I didn't. 
Didn't realize that Ron and I know perfectly well what might happen if we come with you? Well, we do. Ron, show Harry what you've done. Nah, he's just eaten, said Ron. No, go on. He's got to know. All right, Harry, come here. And for the second time, Ron withdrew his arm from around Hermione and stumped over to the door. Come on. Why, Harry asked, following Ron out of the room onto the tining landing. Descendo, muttered Ron, pointing his wand at the low ceiling, and a hatch opened right over their heads and a ladder slid down under their feet. A horrible, half-sucking, half-moaning sound came from the square hole, along with an unpleasant smell like open drains. That's your ghoul, isn't it? Asked Harry, who had never actually met the creature that sometimes disrupted the nightly silence. Yeah, it is, said Ron, climbing the ladder. Come and have a look at him. Harry followed Ron up the short few steps to the tiny attic space. His head and shoulders were in the room before he caught sight of the creature curled up a few feet from him, fast asleep in the gloom, with its large mouth wide open. But it looks... It, do, do girls... Do ghouls normally wear pajamas? No, said Ron, nor have they usually got red hair or that number of pustules. Harry contemplated the thing slightly revolted. It was human in shape and size, and was wearing what, now that Harry's eyes had become used to the dark, was clearly a pair of Ron's old pajamas. He was also sure that ghouls were generally rather slimy and bald, rather than distinctly hairy and covered angry in purple blisters. He's me, you see? No, said Harry, I, I don't see. <laughs> well, I'll explain it back in the room. The smell is getting to me, said Ron. They climbed back down the ladder, which Ron returned to the ceiling and rejoined Hermione, who was still sorting books. Once we've left, the ghoul's going to come in and live down here in my room, said Ron. I think he's really looking forward to it. Well, it's hard to tell because all he can do is moan and drool, but he nods a lot when he mentions it. Anyways, he's going to be me with Spattergroyd. Good, huh? Harry merely looked at his confusion. It is, said Ron, clearly frustrated that Harry had not grasped the brilliance of the plan. Look, when we three don't turn up at Hogwarts again, everyone's going to think Hermione and I must be with you, right? Which means the Death Eaters will go straight for our families to see if they've got information on where you are. But hopefully it'll look like I've gone away with my mom and dad because a lot of Muggleborns are talking about going into hiding at the moment, said Hermione. We can't hide my whole family, said Ron. It'll look too fishy and they can't all leave their jobs. So we're going to put out the story that I'm seriously ill with Spattergroit, which is why I can't go back to school. And if anyone comes calling to investigate, mom or dad can show them the ghoul in my bed covered in pustules. Spattergroit's really contagious, so they're not going to want to get near him. And it won't matter that he can't say anything either, because apparently... Once you, you can't once the fungus has spread through your uvula. And your mom and dad are in on the plan? Asked Harry. Dad is. He helped Fred and George transform the ghoul. Mom, well, you see what she's like. She won't accept we're gone. We're going until we've actually gone. And there was silence in the room, broken only by the gentle thuds Hermione continued to throw books onto one pile or the other. Ron sat watching her, and Harry looked from one to the other, unable to say anything. The measures they had taken to protect their families made him realize, more than anything else could have done, that they really were going to come with him, and that they knew exactly how dangerous that would be. He wanted to tell them what that meant to him, but he simply could not find the words important enough. And through the silence came the muffled sounds of Mrs. Weasley shouting from four floors below. Ginny's probably left a speck of dust on a poxy napkin ring. I don't know why the Delacours have got to come two days before the wedding. Fleur's sister is a bridesmaid. She needs to be here for the rehearsal, and she's too young to come on her own, said Hermione as she poured indecisively over a break with the banshee. Well, guests aren't going to help Mom's stress levels, said Ron. Well, we really need to decide, said Hermione, tossing defensive magical theory into the bin without a second glance, picking up an appraisal of magical education in Europe. Is where we're going to go after we leave here? I know you said you wanted to go to Godric's Hollows first, Harry, and I understand why, but, well, shouldn't we make the Horcruxes our priority? If we knew where any of the Horcruxes were, I'd agree with you, said Harry, 
who did not believe that Hermione really understood his desire to return to Godric's Hollow. His parents' graves were only part of the attraction. He had a strong, though inexplicable, feeling that the place held answers for him. Perhaps it was simply because he was there. It was there when he had survived Voldemort's killing curse, and now that he was faced with the challenge of repeating that feat, Harry was drawn to the place where it had happened, wanting to understand. Don't you think there's a possibility that Voldemort's keeping a watch on Godric's Hollow? said Hermione. He might expect you to go back and visit your parents' graves once you're free to go wherever you like. This had not occurred to Harry, and while he struggled to find a counter-argument, Ron spoke up, evidently following his own train of thought. The RAB person, you know, the one who sold the real locket? Hermione nodded. He said in his note that he was going to destroy it, didn't he? And Harry dragged his rucksack towards him and pulled out the fake Horcrux in which RAB's note was still folded. I have stolen the real Horcrux and intend to destroy it as soon as I can, Harry read out. Well, what if he did finish it off? Or she, interposed Hermione. Whichever, said Ron, it'd be one less for us to do. Yes, but we're still going to have to try and trace the real locket, aren't we? Asked Hermione to find out whether or not it's been destroyed. And once we get a hold of it, how do you destroy a horcrux? Asked Ron. Well, said Hermione, I have been researching that. How? Asked Harry. I didn't think there were any books on horcruxes in the library. There weren't, said Hermione, who turned pink. Dumbledore removed them all, but he didn't destroy them. Ron sat up straight, wide-eyed. How in the name of Merlin's pants have you managed to get your hands on those Horcrux books? It, it wasn't stealing, said Hermione, looking from Harry to Ron with a kind of desperation. They were still library books, even if Dumbledore had taken them off the shelves. Anyways, if you really wanted, didn't want anyone to get at them, I'm sure you would have made it much harder to... Get to the point, said Ron. Well, it was easy, said Hermione in a small voice. I just did a summoning charm, you know, Accio, and they zoomed out of Dumbledore's study right into the girls' dormitory. But when did you do this? Harry asked, regarding Hermione with a mixture of admiration and incredulity. Just after his, Dumbledore's, funeral, said Hermione in an even smaller voice. Right after we agreed, we'd leave school and go look for the Horcruxes. When I went back upstairs to get my things, it just occurred to me that the more we knew about them, the better it would be. And I was alone in there, and so I tried, and it worked. They flew straight into the open window, and I packed it. She swallowed and then said imploringly, I can't believe Dumbledore would have been angry. It's not as though we're going to use the information to make a Horcrux, is it? Can you hear us complaining, said Ron? Where are these books anyways? Hermione rummaged for a moment and then extracted from a pile a large volume bound in faded black leather. She looked a little nauseated and held it gingerly as if it was something recently dead. This is the one that gives explicit instructions on how to make a horcrux. Secrets of the Darkest Art. It's a horrible book, really awful, full of evil magic. And I wonder when Dumbledore removed it from the library, if he didn't do it until he was headmaster, I bet this is where Voldemort got all the instruction he needed to make a horcrux. Why do you have to ask Slughorn how to make a horcrux, and if he'd already read that? Well, he only approached Slughorn to find out what would happen if you split your soul into seven, said Harry. Dumbledore was sure Riddle already knew how to make a horcrux by the time he asked Slughorn about them, and I think you're right, Hermione. That could have easily been where he got the information. And the more I read about them, said Hermione, the more horrible they seem, and the less I can believe that he actually made six. It warns in the book how unstable you make the rest of your soul by ripping it, and that's just by making one horcrux. And Harry remembered what Dumbledore had said about Voldemort moving on the usual evil. Isn't there any way of putting yourself back together? Ron asked. Yes, said Hermione with a hollow smile, but it would be excruciatingly painful. Why? How do you do it? asked Harry. Remorse, said Hermione. You've got to really feel what you've done. There's a footnote. Apparently the pain of it can destroy you. I can't see Voldemort attempting it somehow. Can you? No, said Ron before Harry could answer. So does it say how to destroy Horcruxes in that book? 
Yes, said Hermione, now turning the fragile pages as if exam examining rotting entrails. Because it warns dark wizards how strong they have to make the enchantments on them. From all that I've read, what Harry did to destroy Riddle's diary was one of the very foolproof ways of destroying a horcrux. What, stabbing it with a basilisk fang? asked Harry. Oh, well, luckily we've got such a large supply of basilisk fangs, then, said Ron. I was wondering what we were going to do with them. It doesn't have to be a basilisk <laughs> fang, said Hermione patiently. It has to be something so destructive that the horcrux can't repair itself. Basilisk venom only has one antidote, and it's incredibly rare. Phoenix tears, said Harry, nodding. Exactly, said Hermione. So our problem is that there are very few substances as destructive as basilisk venom, and they're all very dangerous to carry around with you. That's a problem we're going to have to solve, though, because ripping, smashing, or crushing a horcrux will not do the trick. You've got to put it beyond magical repair. But even if we wreck the thing it lives in, said Ron, why can't the bit of soul just go and live somewhere else? Because a horcrux is a complete opposite of a human being. Seeing that Harry and Ron looked thoroughly confused, Hermione hurried on. Look, if I picked up a sword right now, Ron, and ran it through you, it wouldn't damage your soul at all. Which would be a real comfort to me, I'm sure, said Ron, and Harry laughed. It should be, actually. My point is that whatever happens to your body, your soul will survive untouched, said Hermione. But it's the other way around with a horcrux. The fragment of soul inside it depends on its container, its enchanted body, for survival. It cannot exist without it. And that diary sort of sort of died when I stabbed it, said Harry, remembering the ink pouring like blood from the punctured pages and the screams of the piece of Voldemort's soul as it vanished. And once the diary was properly destroyed, the bit of soul was trapped in it could no longer exist. Ginny tried to get rid of the diary before you did, flushing it away, but obviously it came back good as new. Hang on, said Ron, frowning. That bit of soul in that diary was possessing Ginny, wasn't it? How does that work then? Well, while the magical container is still intact, the bit of soul inside it can flit in and out of someone if they get too close to the object. And I don't mean holding it for too long. It's got nothing to do with touching it, she added before Ron could speak. I mean close emotionally. Ginny poured her heart out into that diary and she made herself incredibly vulnerable. You're in trouble if you get too fond of or dependent on the Horcrux. I wonder how Dumbledore destroyed the ring, said Harry. Why didn't I ask him? I never really... His voice tailed away. He was thinking of all the things he should have asked Dumbledore and how, since the headmaster had died, it seemed to Harry that he had wasted so many opportunities when Dumbledore had been alive to find out more, to find out everything. And the silence was shattered as a bedroom door flew open with a wall-shaking crash. Hermione shrieked and dropped Secrets of the Dark and Sards, and Crookshake shrieked under the bed, hissing indig indignantly, and Ron jumped off the bed, skidded on a discarded chocolate frog wrapper, and smacked his head on the opposite wall. Harry instinctively dived for his wand before realizing that he was looking up at Mrs. Weasley, whose hair was disheveled and whose face was contorted with rage. "'Oh, I'm so sorry to break up this cozy little gathering,' she said, her voice trembling. "'I'm sure you all need your rest. But there are wedding presents stacked in my room that need sorting out, and I was under the impression that you had agreed to help.' "'Oh, yes,' said Hermione, <laughs> looking terrified as she leapt to her feet, sending books flying in every direction. "'We will. We're sorry.' And with an anguished look at Harry and Ron, Hermione hurried out of the room after Mrs. Weasley. "'It's like being a house elf,' Ron complained in an undertone, still massaging his head as Harry followed. "'Except without the job satisfaction. The sooner this wedding's over, the happier I'll be.' "'Yeah,' said Harry. "'And then we'll have nothing to do except find the Horcruxes. "'It'll be like a holiday, won't it?' And that's where I'll stop my reading of the passages there. So a lot of stuff to unpack just in that little moment. We've learned that Hermione was able to get her hands on the Horcrux books, which brings up a couple 
things that I'm going to bring up later in this episode when we get to other sections. But Dumbledore, you would imagine, would make it hard for Hermione to summon those books. And so my thought process is maybe those enchantments that Dumbledore would have put to make it hard to get the, the Horcruxes, maybe they broke when he died. Because, like, you know how he put Harry on that full bind curse when they landed on the Astromony Tower, and as soon as Snape killed him, he was free because the spell had broken? So it's very possible, I guess, that the spell enchantments he used to kind of keep the Horcrux books safe, maybe they broke when he died. But that brings up some stuff that I'm going to talk about a little bit later on in other sections. So now we've got the Horcrux books, which is a huge thing, because now not only do we have them, we know how to destroy a Horcrux, which is the big key detail in all of this. We're bringing books along the way to see of where we might find them, what we might need to do. She's like, do we need to translate runes? I thought it was funny when she was like putting in like a keep pile and a throwaway pile. Remember the defensive magical theory book that they read about in Umbridge's class? She just threw that away with that without a second glance. I thought that was funny. <laughs> we don't need yep, this. That, we don't need this at all. And then, uh, yeah, so that's, they started kind of putting a little bit of a game plan together, too, of what they had done to prove to Harry that they actually were ready to take on this adventure with him about all the lengths and measures they took them to keep their family safe. And on top of that, now they know this doesn't make it easier to find the Horcruxes, but they know finally once they do get them, they have the knowledge to destroy it. Now it's about going to be about finding the objects that will allow them to destroy it. So that's kind of where that left off and the big takeaways that I got from that passage. What are some of the takeaways that you've got? And then I'll let you kind of take it on from there. Yeah, see, I think my view of that is opposite. I think Dumbledore wanted him to find it. I think he made it too easy for a reason. Like, I think uh, if he was truly as important as Horcruxes were to him at the time, I think he would have thought of spells being as intelligent as Dumbledore was to realize that for instance the full body bind curse you know would break I feel like he would have put a little bit more protection around those books like he uh, of course uh, you know had them removed from the library but for Accio the summoning charm to work on that I feel like that's way too easy and who did he tell who did he say Harry could talk to about this was only Ron and Hermione. And I feel like Dumbledore felt like he knew damn Harry and Ron weren't going to go try that. <laughs> but there was one person that would be in that library that might well, try it. the reason I mentioned that and, uh, is only because I'm not saying that he wanted to keep them from Harry, Ron, and Hermione. I think he wanted to keep them from mm -hmm. getting in the hands of anybody else. You know, So like that's why I think he would yeah, he would have kind of kept them under secret lock and spell because he doesn't want another... Like, you know, if Draco Malfoy decided he wanted to be like Voldemort and figure out how to make Horcruxes, he doesn't want to make it easy for someone else like that to get the books. That's all I was saying. I don't think he was trying to keep the right. books from the Golden Trio. I think he would have put spells and enchantments to make sure the books wouldn't get into the wrong hands, if that makes sense. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah, because, I mean... Yeah, the only question is then is on the other side who really cared about the Horcruxes besides Voldemort? Well, that's the thing. Like because if they found I out guess... about them, yeah, if they found out about them, maybe they would be interested, but many people didn't know what Horcruxes were. So it's like if that so yeah. I think Dumbledore was my mind cuz like he's like Hermione said he probably took the books like as soon as he became headmaster and he's been headmaster for, you know, 50 plus years, right? So like Right. You know, he probably took him right away, and he was making sure that no one could come across that term and try to find out what they're about. And that's why I think that he would have put some enchantments on it to make sure 
like if someone did find out the term and try to look it up that they wouldn't be able to find those you know the the, the information yeah i agree with that uh, yeah i could definitely see that um yeah those were pretty much my takeaways there besides hermione bringing her entire library <laughs> <laughs> with her pretty much and then i thought the ghoul was pretty awesome i thought it was pretty clever yeah. um yeah, very, very creative. And then how almost that's almost like a full circle moment, too, because we've been hearing about the ghoul in the attic for like the longest time. And finally, it actually at least serves a, some sort of a purpose, I guess. That's right. So that's pretty cool. Um, yeah. And uh, just a, I just got some bullet points really to close us out here. Did you have anything in detail you really wanted to read for you? No, the only one thing I was going to read is one small paragraph about like one the Delacours arrive how the daughter was flirting with Harry and Ginny kind of got like a little jealous and a little gave her like some <laughs> like a dirty look even though like the sister's only 11 years old like in Harry's 17 it's like he's gonna leave Ginny for an 11 year old I just thought it was funny how she tried to flirt with Harry and Ginny's like <clears throat> like tried to stand her ground <laughs> that's the only thing that I was yeah, gonna take read it. is that one take paragraph. it away uh, read that part All I'll right. let you close you can close this out this chapter because um I just had a couple of bullet points which I mean you know yeah. It's uh, it's almost party time for Harry. Is uh, That's right. he's gonna be reaching that age in a couple of days. <laughs> yeah, but I'll 100%. let you close this out this chapter, man. No worries. Yeah, it's gonna take ten seconds. Honestly, the on page one hundred seven, the bullet point I have is Fleur's parents arrive for the wedding. Then on page one hundred eight, just the the second paragraph. Uh, I'm sorry, the fourth paragraph is like, of course you have met my little daughter Gabrielle," said Monsieur Delacour. Gabrielle was fewer in miniature, 11 years old, with waist-length hair of pure silvery blonde. She gave Mrs. Weasley a dazzling smile, hugged her, and then threw Harry a glowing look, batting her eyelashes, and Ginny cleared her throat loudly. So that's just that small little paragraph I want to read because like, it showed her getting jealous of an 11-year-old. I thought that was pretty funny. And then the last thing I have <laughs> for the chapter is just how Mrs. Weasley asks Harry about what he wants to do to celebrate his birthday. And he tells her just a normal dinner would be fine, like something very small, because Harry realizes the stress and pressure mm -hmm. of everything that's going on. Because you know how rich and fancy the French people are, and like they're coming to the borough, which you know they don't really like. The Weasleys don't have a ton of money, so they're trying the best they can to look presentable for like this really rich family who's like beautiful and dazzling. They want to make sure they're looking good, and on top of that. Mrs. Weasley knows in the back of her mind that Ron and Hermione and Harry are going on this adventure. They don't know where, so she's super stressed out. So Harry's doing his best to like alleviate it. Be like, no, like honestly, just a regular dinner's fine. Nothing special for my birthday. Thank you so much. Like you're the best. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of where I was gonna end that chapter. Is just by saying that. Did you have anything that you were gonna add to it? No, that's exactly what I had. I had a first thing first on the realist. <laughs> Drop this, let the whole world hey. feel it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In the murder business, because I'll hold you down. Like I'm giving lessons in physics. Yeah, Molly has to be on her A game with those Delacours coming right. to town, man. But yeah, that's all I had, man. You you nailed that one. And, um, you know, just reflecting on that, I mean... I can definitely, you know, I kind of feel bad for Molly in a little way because, I mean, she always tries to, like, take charge of the situation, but I feel like everyone just tiptoes yeah. around her and does their own thing no matter what they yep. do. Even, even her husband um, with, like, the flying yeah, motorcycle, like, I don't tell Molly that I've got this motorcycle I'm working on. <laughs> and, like, yeah, you're right. Every time, like, she tries to lay the law I down. I think I have a right to know, don't you, Harry? <laughs> and he said, absolutely not. <laughs> it's it's, a, it's great but um now we're going into man like a really important chapter here that's even going to play significance 
through the rest of this book like close us out through the series like this is this chapter here is what defines this book really i would say like this is what without this chapter we're about to go into this book could have ended up entirely different i'll say um yeah and uh you want to kind of start us out here you want me to take some bullet points how you want to go about chapter seven Uh, yeah i'll just take three bullet points and let you do the ones from there i just wanted to talk about the first thing because i thought it was cool one of my favorite parts Mm -hmm. on like the first paragraph it's like a little vision of what you know like the that connection starting to open back up between voldemort and harry and it's going to come very very important later on uh, it says he was walking down a, uh, along a mountain road in the cool blue light of dawn and far below swathed in the mist was a shadow of a small town was the man he sought down there the man he needed so badly he could think of little else the man who held all the answers the answers to his problem then ron kind of wakes him up he's like you're mudding in your sleep and Harry, harry's like oh really he's like yeah you kept saying gregorovich over and over again and so that's just a big foreshadow I want to detail because Grigorovich, mm-hmm. you know, if you remember who he was, like he's come up before. I don't want to ruin anything yet because we're going to get more into it later in the chapters that follow this one. But he's been mentioned in the Goblet of Fire, and it's very, very important mm-hmm. of why Voldemort is looking for Grigorovich. Uh, and the, the, with that, Harry tells Ron that he thinks Voldemort's abroad and not in Britain. And I thought that's pretty, it, it, it's a, a significant moment because. Yeah. It means, like, for the very delicate moment right now, I wouldn't say they're safe, but, like, they have less to worry about because Voldemort's out abroad in Britain searching for answers to his problem of the wands, like, why his, like, Lucius' Malfoy's wand didn't work against him because that's what he was trying to get out of Ollivander, and then we're going to learn a little bit more about Grigorovich later on. And, um, yeah, the one thing I did want to say is all the presents that Harry's got with his birthday. So it's Harry's 17th birthday. The trace is gone. I thought it was funny. I was talking to Chase about this a little bit ago, about how, like, in Harry's 17th birthday, uh, the first spell he uses is Accio for his glasses. And I thought that was super underwhelming. <laughs> like, when you turn 21 and you finally are able to get your first legal drink, like, you go all out. You get that top-shelf liquor. You get the Dom Perignon champagne. You pour it in there. Like, you, like I'm not just going to order a Bud Light when I turn 21. No, I waited all this time to be able to drink alcohol. Now that I'm 21, I want, like, something badass. Like, I'm not going to be able to drink that all the time, but it's a celebration. So I'm thinking Harry's going to do some cool spell. Like, I don't know what it's going to be. I thought he's going to do something badass. And he uses a simple summoning charm that he's known for three years. Like, okay. And just and all he was is to get his glasses from the bedside <laughs> to his hand to put him on like it was very very underwhelming so got a lot of problems there harry step your damn game up you're better than that anyways that's the first spell he uses as a 17 year old of age wizard and speaking of of age here's some of the presents that were given to him ron gives harry 12 fail safe ways to charm witches which is a book he gives it to him for his birthday and i found that a bit odd because who was the last person that harry was seeing Ron's sister. So is Ron like trying to tell Harry? Is like Ron trying to tell Harry how to charm his sister, or is he trying to say, "Hey, Harry, while we're out and about, like, forget my sister. You can hook up with whoever you want." Like, either way, it's very weird. I don't know why Ron gave him that it's book. Very odd. Very strange. <laughs> then Mr. and Mrs. Weasley gave Harry the traditional gift that wizards receive when they come of age, which is a watch. And Harry's was gold with stars circling around the face instead of hands. It actually belonged to Mr. Mrs. Weasley's brother Fabian. Uh, before his untimely death and what's kind of funny and i i it's almost like a full circle moment or like the irony of the situation because like if you guys think about this remember growing up and how we've gone through this whole series of books ron always had the second hand hand me down stuff 
the secondhand wand, the secondhand pet rabbit, the secondhand robes. Like he never had anything new, but his Mr. and Mrs. Weasley got him a brand new watch for his 17th birthday last book on March 1st in, in uh, Half-Blood Prince. And now it's kind of like the flip side. Like Harry got like a secondhand hand-me-down watch, but Harry's super, super thankful. He hugs her and tries to put like a lot of meaning into it of how much it means to him that she kind of views him as a son. So I thought that was kind of cool. We kind of got the shoe on the other foot. Now Harry got a hand-me-down, something that's important, uh, where Ron got a brand new one last week. So it, it, it was a nice, it was a nice touch. I enjoyed that. And, uh, Continuing on of what he received, Hermione gave Harry a new sneakoscope. Bill and Fewer got him an enchanted razor. Mr. and Mrs. Delacour got him chocolates. Fred and George got him an enormous box of the latest Weasley Wizard Wheezes merchandise. And the very last thing that he got, Ginny gave Harry the kiss of his life for his 17th birthday. He got, oh, she yeah. gave him a really good, passionate, passionate kisses. The, so said, hot never been in kissed here. Like that. Yeah. Until Ron ruins the moment and bursts open the door. With that, I'll turn it over to Chase, and he'll go ahead and, and take us from there. Yeah, man. No, that was perfect. Uh, one thing I did want to mention, because it was a typical Ron moment just from the beginning, how you mentioned uh, 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 Grigorovich, and he goes, Gorgovich, the chaser, he transferred to the Chudley Cannons for a record fee two years ago. Record holder for most quaffle drops in a season. <laughs> like, typical Ron. Like, I don't think that's Harry, what Harry was thinking about, no. Ron. <laughs> like, anyone, maybe Ron should consult his hopefully soon-to-be girlfriend if he plays his cards right. If she could put his head on straight with what Harry was thinking about. Typical Ron. Not to mention he sucks at Quidditch. Like, he needs to stop trying to act like he's the Quidditch master. Because last time I checked, he did a doggy paddle in front of a stand of about 10,000 students. Fucking Ron, man. Fucking shit. Hey, like, they did win the Quidditch Cup without Harry. Harry was in detention for the curse he used on Malfoy, and they did win the Quidditch Cup without him. So he couldn't be too bad. Give him a little. Yeah, give him a little. Give him a little. Little, little leeway. Yeah, we'll give little him a little leeway. I think you're. I think you're forgetting about a uh, Weasley is our king. But Weasley remember, is our king. on top of that, in Order of the Phoenix, he's actually the reason why they won it back when Hermione and uh, Harry had to follow Hagrid to go find Grop. So, like, I would say we're gonna give Harry, uh, we're gonna give enough. Ron a grade of like, I would give Ron like a B minus to a C plus. In, in terms of his Quidditch ability. Okay, fair enough. Fair B enough. minus to C plus. Just, That's somewhere in that in that range. Like Harry really had thought Harry, Harry gets was... an A, Ginny gets like a A minus, Ron gets like a B minus or a C plus. Like that's what that's what fair we're going enough. with. Fair so. enough. Yeah, but anyways, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll give on. him some leeway on it. I'll give him some leeway. I just thought it was so out of left field <laughs> like yeah. so out of left like why field. the heck would voldemort Chudley care Cannons. about a quidditch player what did that what the hell would that matter like yeah i'm with you <laughs> get the fuck out of here ron <laughs> get the fuck out of here anyways okay so uh you know from there i kind of got just some a little bit of bullet points here uh so i'll take it from 118 in just a minute but so charlie arrives and then of course, Molly, like, raised her wand threateningly at him and told him he was about to get a proper haircut. <laughs> like, get your ass up there, Charlie. You got some haircutting to do while the Delacours are here. That's right. <laughs> so you definitely, just like you said, 
Molly's on high alert now. <laughs> Almost like that Vince Vaughn in Mr. and Mrs. Smith. We're on high alert here. <laughs> We're on high alert. <laughs> yeah. So she's like trying to keep control of everything. And then from this point, so I got on 118. Uh, so Harry Hagrid arrives, of course, for Harry's birthday dinner. And um, this is a big one is Harry uh, gets this like drawstring pouch. And it's uh, supposed to be like worn around the neck, but he said it's like made out of moleskin. Is it moleskin? Yep. Is how he is that how you pronounce that? It sure. Yeah. Is. And um, but he said uh, uh, you can't hide anything from no one, but the owner can get it out. So like this plays a big part later on because it's that pouch where you can put you know pretty much anything in, which is really cool. Um, yeah, I mean, like, let's talk about from, that for a second because you're right, that does come into play later on. But that Moleskin drawstring pouch, imagine like the possibilities of this because he said, like Hagrid, Hagrid just said, like that you can hide anything in it and nobody but the owner can get it out. And that's going to be super important. The owner, like, yeah. yeah, like only like so now Harry is like the owner of it. And so whatever he puts in there, anyone else could try to get into it and they can't. It's impossible. Only the owner can get into it. So that's really important. But yeah, that's I just want to yeah. touch on that. <laughs> Yeah, no, definitely. And then the next kind of bullet point I had was, uh, so Hagrid is talking to Charlie, and he's this kind of full circle moment. Remember, we were talking about Norbert before. Uh, and he goes, how's Norbert been? And Charlie just goes, she's vicious. She's a vicious girl. And then, uh, of course, Hagrid is kind of like, like she. And then he's like, yeah, they call her Norberta now. <laughs> so Norbert was a girl this entire yep. time um so that that was a pretty big moment there uh at that point uh so this is kind of a big one and then i'll turn it right back over to you so they see this massive streak of light come flying across the table and um it resolved into this bright silver weasel and uh it's it's just this quote you know from arthur weasley uh this voice that says minister of magic coming with me and then all of a sudden you have Lupin and Tonks and Lupin's like, we shouldn't be here. And like at once they're just like, Harry, I'm, I'm sorry, I'll explain later. And then, of course, Lupin and Tonks just take off, man. Like they're just gone, like I'm out of here. And at this point, I'll turn it back over to you, man. Yeah, sounds like a plan. And like, honestly, the, we're going to find out why. That's a big foreshadow of why Lupin and Tonks had to dip out before the minister got there. Uh, there's two other things like these aren't important but they are small things that I wanted to mention quite before two bullet points from a little bit back like after Charlie arrived uh, in page 119 Ron compliments Hermione and Harry thinks that he learned how to compliment a female from the book that Ron gave Harry I thought that was funny because you know Ron's tr yeah. Ron's trying to develop a relationship with Hermione like it's a, it's not a really it's like a the worst kept secret like everyone knows it except probably Hermione but like it's it's just funny and then also, Mrs. Weasley made Harry a cake in the form of a stitch, which is nice because she knows how good he is yeah. at Quidditch. So those are just the two things mm -hmm. there. Uh, but yeah, on page 122, uh, Rufus Scrimmageor requests a private word with Harry, Ron, and Hermione. And so what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to read from the top of page 123, honestly through the end of the chapter, because it's a very important... Everything in here is very important mm -hmm. for what we kind of detail and go through, so... Uh, anyways, I have some questions for the three of you, and I think it would be best if we do it individually. If you two, he pointed at Harry and Hermione, can wait upstairs, I will start with Ronald. We're not going anywhere, said Harry, while Hermione nodded vigorously. You can speak to us together, or not at all. 
Like, imagine speaking to the Minister of Magic like that. Like, this guy is the head honcho, and you're just like, nah, boy, you don't <laughs> run shit here, I run shit here. <laughs> so, anyways, Scrimmager gave Harry a cold, appraising look. Harry had the impression that the Minister was wondering whether it was worthwhile opening hostilities this early. Very well, then, together, he said, shrugging. He cleared his throat. I am here, as I'm sure you know, because of Albus Dumbledore's will. Harry, Ron, and Hermione looked at one another. Surprise, apparently. So you were not aware, then, that Dumbledore had left you anything. Uh, all of us, said Ron. Me and Hermione, too. Yes, all of but Harry interrupted. Dumbledore died over a month ago. Why has it taken this long to give us what he left us? Isn't it obvious, said Hermione, before Scrimmager could answer. They wanted to examine whatever he's left. he's left us. You had no right to do that, she said, her voice trembled slightly. I had every right, said Scrimmager dismissively. The decree for justifiable confiscation gives the ministry the power to confiscate the contents of a will. That will was created to stop wizards passing on dark artifacts, said Hermione, and the ministry is supposed to have very powerful evidence that the deceased possessions are illegal before seizing them. Are you telling me that you thought Dumbledore was trying to pass us something cursed? Are you planning to follow career in magical law, Miss Granger? asked Scrimmager. No, I'm not, retorted Hermione. I'm hoping to do some good in the world. Ron laughed. Scrimmager's eyes flickered towards him in a way again as Harry spoke. So why have you decided to let us have our things now? Can't think of a pretext to keep them? No, it'll be because of the 31 days are up, said Hermione at once. They can't keep objects longer than that unless they can prove they're dangerous, right? Would you say that you were close to Dumbledore, Ronald? asked Scrimmager, ignoring Hermione. And Ron looked startled. Me? Not really. It was always Harry who... Ron looked around at Harry and Hermione to see Hermione giving him a stop-talking-now sort of look, but the damage was already done. Scrimmager looked as though he had heard exactly what he expected and wanted to hear, so he swooped like a bird of prey upon Ron's answers. If you were not close to Dumbledore, how do you account for the fact that he remembered you in his will? He made exceptionally few personal bequests. The vast majority of his possessions, his private library, his magical instruments, and other personal effects, were left to Hogwarts. Why do you think that you were singled out? I don't know, said Ron. I, uh, when I say we weren't close, I mean, I, I think he liked me. You're being modest, Ron, said Dumbledore, or said Hermione. Dumbledore was very fond of you. This was stretching the truth to a breaking point as far as Harry knew. Ron and Dumbledore had never been alone together, and direct contact between them had been negligible. Negligible. Ooh, wow, I had a hard time with that word. Negligible. <laughs> However, Scrimmager did not wizard <laughs> whizzle. Yeah, that one had me <laughs> tongue-tied, man. Negligible. <laughs> However, Scrimmager did not seem to be listening. He put his hand inside his cloak and drew out a drawstring pouch, much larger than the one Hagrid had given Harry. From it, he removed a scroll of parchment, which he unrolled and read aloud. The last will and testament of Albus Percival Wolfric Brian Dumbledore. Yes, here we are. To Ronald Billius Weasley, I leave my deluminator in the hope that he'll remember me when he uses it. Scrimmager took from the bag an object that Harry had seen before. It looked something like a silver cigarette lighter, but it had, Harry knew, the power to suck all the light from a place and restoring it with a simple click. Scrimmager leaned forward and passed the deluminator to Ron, who took it and turned it over in his fingers, looking stunned. That is a valuable object, said Scrimmager, watching Ron. It may even be unique. Certainly, it is of Dumbledore's own design. Why would he have left you an item so rare? Ron shook his head, looking bewildered. 
Dumbledore must have taught thousands of students, Grimmadroid persevered. Yet the only ones remembered in his will are you three. Why is that? To what use did he think you would put this deluminator, Mr. Weasley? Put out lights, I suppose, mumbled Ron. What else could I do with it? Evidently, Scrimmageur had no suggestions, and after squinting at Ron for a moment or two, he turned back to Dumbledore's will. To Miss Hermione Jean Granger, I leave my copies of The Tales of the Beetle and the Bard in the hope that she will find it entertaining and instructive. Scrimmageur now pulled out of the bag a small book that looked as ancient as a copy of Secrets of the Darkest Art upstairs. Its binding was stained and peeled in places. Hermione took it from Scrimmageur without a single word. She held the book in her lap and gazed at it. Harry saw the title was in runes. He had never learned to read them. And as he looked, a tear splashed on the embossed symbols. Why do you think Dumbledore left you that book, Miss Granger? Asked Scrimmageur. He knew I liked books, said Hermione in a thick voice, mopping her eyes with her sleeve. But why that particular book? I don't know. He must have thought I'd enjoy it. Did you ever discuss codes or means of passing secret messages with Dumbledore? No, I didn't, said Hermione, swiping her eyes on his sleeves, and if the Ministry hasn't found any hidden codes in this book, in 31 days, I doubt that I will. She suppressed a sob. They were wedged together so tightly that Ron had a very much difficulty extracting his arm to put it around Hermione's shoulders. Scrimmagers turned back to the will. To Harry James Potter, he read, and Harry's insides contracted with sudden excitement. I leave the snitch he caught in his first Quidditch match at Hogwarts as a reminder of the rewards of perseverance and skill. And as Scrimmageur pulled out the tiny walnut-sized golden ball, its silver wings fluttered rather feebly, and Harry could not help feeling the definite sense of anticlimax. Why did Dumbledore leave you the snitch? asked Scrimmageur. No idea, said Harry, for the reasons you just read out, I suppose. To remind me what you can get if you persevere and whatever it is. So you think this is a mere symbolic keepsake, then? I suppose so, asked Harry. I mean, I said, Harry, what else could it be? I'm asking the question, said Scrimmageur, shifting his chair a little closer to the sofa. Dusk was falling outside now, and the marquee beyond the window towered ghostly white over the hedge. I noticed that your birthday cake is in the shape of a snitch, Scrimmageur said to Harry. Why is that? Hermione laughed derisively. Oh, it can't be a reference to the fact that Harry is a great seeker. That's way too obvious, she said. It must be a secret message from Dumbledore hidden in the icing. I don't think there's anything hidden in the icing, said Scrimmageur, but a snitch would be a very good place for hiding a small object. You know why, I'm sure. Harry shrugged. Hermione, however, answered. Harry thought that answering questions correctly was such a deeply ingrained habit that she could not suppress the urge. Because snitches have flesh memory, she said. What? So Harry and Ron together both considered, because they both considered Hermione's Quidditch knowledge negligible. Correct, said Scrimmageur. A snitch is not touched by bare skin before it is released, not even by the maker who wears gloves. It carries an enchantment by which it can identify the first human to lay hands upon it in case of a disputed capture. This snitch, he held the tiny golden ball, will remember your touch, Potter. It occurred to me that Dumbledore, who had prodigious magical skill, whatever his other faults, might have enchanted this snitch so that it would only open for you. Harry's heart was beating fast. He was sure that Scrimmageur was right, but how could he avoid taking the snitch with his bare hands in front of the minister? You don't say anything, said Scrimmageur. Perhaps you already know what the snitch contains. No, said Harry, still wondering how he could appear to touch the snitch without really doing so. 
If only he knew legilimency, really knew it, and he could read Hermione's mind, he could practically hear her brain whirling beside him. Take it, said Scrimmage quietly. Harry met the minister's yellow eyes, and he had he knew that he had no option but to obey, so he held out his hand, and Scrimmage leaned forward again, placed the snitch slowly, deliberately into Harry's palm. Nothing happened. As Harry's fingers closed around the snitch, its tired wings fluttered and were still. Scrimmageor, Ron, and Hermione continued to gaze avidly at the now partially concealed ball as if hoping it might transform in some way. Well, that was dramatic, said Harry coolly, and both Ron and Hermione laughed. That's all then, is it? asked Hermione, making note to pry herself off the sofa. Not quite, said Scrimmageor, who looked bad-tempered now. Dumbledore left you a second bequest, Potter. What is it? asked Harry, excitement rekindling. Scrimmageor did not bother to read from the will this time. The sword of Godric Gryffindor. Hermione and Ron both stiffened. Harry looked around for the sign of the ruby-encrusted hilt, but Scrimmageur did not pull the sword from the leather pouch, which, in any case, looked much too small to contain it. So where is it? Harry asked suspiciously. Unfortunately, said Scrimmageur, that sword was not Dumbledore's to give away. The sword of Godric Gryffindor is an important historical artifact, and as such belongs... It belongs to Harry, said Hermione hotly. It chose him. He was the one who found it. It came to him out of the sorting hat. According to reliable historical sources, the sword may present itself to any worthy Gryffindor, said Scrimmageur. That does not make it the exclusive property of Mr. Potter, whatever Dumbledore may have decided. Scrimmageur scratched his badly shaven cheek, scrutinizing Harry. What do you think Dumbledore wanted me to give me the sword for? Said Harry, struggling to keep his temper. Maybe he thought it would look nice on my wall. This is not a joke, Potter, growled Scrimmageur. Was it because Dumbledore believed that only the sword of Godric Gryffindor could defeat the heir of Slytherin? Did he wish to give you that sword, Potter, because he believed, as do many, that you are destined to destroy he who must not be named? Interesting theory, said Harry. Has anyone ever tried sticking a sword in Voldemort? Maybe the Ministry should put some people onto that, instead of wasting their time stripping down deluminators and covering up mass breakouts from Azkaban. So is this what you've been doing, Minister? Shut up in your office, trying to break open a snitch? People are dying. I was nearly one of them. Voldemort chased me across three counties. He killed Mad-Eye Moody. But there's been no word about any of that from the Ministry, has there? And you still expect us to cooperate with you. You go too far, shouted Scrimmageur standing up. Harry jumped to his feet too. Scrimmageur limped towards Harry and jabbed him hard in the chest with the point of his wand. It singed a hole in Harry's t-shirt like a cigarette. Oi, said Ron, jumping up and wringing his own wand. But Harry said, no. Do you want to give him an excuse to arrest us? Remember, you're not at school, have you? Said Scrimmageur, breathing hard into Harry's face. Remember... I am not Dumbledore, who forgave your insolence and insubordination. You may wear that scar like a crown, Potter, but it is not to a 17-year-old boy to tell me how to do my job. It's time you learned some respect. It's time you earned it, said Harry. The floor trembled. There was a sound of running footsteps. Then the door to the sitting room burst open, and Mr. and Mrs. Weasley ran in. We thought we had heard, began Mr. Weasley, looking thoroughly alarmed at the sight of Harry and the minister virtually nose-to-nose. Raised voices panted Mrs. Weasley. Scrimmageur took a couple of steps back from Harry, glanced at the hole that he had made in Harry's shirt, and he seemed to regret his loss of temper. It was, it was nothing, he growled. I regret your attitude, he said, looking Harry full in the face once more. You seem to think that the Ministry does not desire what you, what Dumbledore desired. We ought to be working together. I don't like your methods, Minister, said Harry. Remember? And for the second time, he raised his right fist to display to Scrimmageur the scars that still sewed white on the back of it, Spelling, I must not tell lies. Scrimmageur's expression hardened. He turned away without another word and limped from the room. 
Mrs. Weasley hurried after him, and Harry heard her step at the back door, and after a minute or so she called, He's gone. What do you want? Mr. Weasley asked, looking around at Harry, Ron, and Hermione as Mrs. Weasley came back, hurrying to them. To give what Dumbledore left us. They've only just released the contents of his will. Outside in the garden, over the dinner tables, the three objects Scrimmageur had given them were passed from hand to hand. Everyone exclaimed over the Deluminator and the tales of the Beetle and the Bard, and lamented the fact that Scrimmageur had refused to pass on the sword, but none of them could have offered any suggestion as to why Dumbledore would have left Harry an old snitch. As Mr. Weasley examined the Deluminator for the third or fourth time, Mrs. Weasley said tentatively, Harry, dear, everyone's awfully hungry. We didn't like to start without you. Shall I serve dinner now? And they all ate rather hurriedly. Then after a hasty chorus of happy birthday and much gulping of cake, the party broke up. Hagrid, who was invited to the wedding the following day, but was far too bulky to sleep in the overstretched burrow, he left to set up a tent for himself in a neighboring field. Meet us upstairs, Harry whispered to Hermione while they helped Mrs. Weasley to restore the garden to its normal state after everyone's gone to bed. Up in the attic room, Ron examined his deluminator and Harry filled Hagrid's moleskin purse not with gold, but with those items he prized most. Apparently worthless, though some of them were. The Marauder's Map, the Shard of Sirius's Enchanted Mirror, and R.A.B.'s Locket. He pulled the strings tight and slipped the purse around his neck. Then he sat holding the old snitch and watching its wings flutter, and at last Hermione tapped on the door and tiptoed inside. Muffliato, she whispered, waving her wand in the direction of the stairs. I thought you didn't approve of that spell, said Ron. Time's changed, said Hermione. Now, show us that deluminator. Ron obliged at once. Holding it up in front of him, he clicked it. The solitary lamp that he lit went out at once. The thing is, whispered Hermione through the dark, we could have achieved that with Peruvian instant darkness powder. And there was a small click, and the ball of light from the lamp flew back into the ceiling and illuminated them all once more. Still, it's cool, said Ron a little defensively. And from what they say, Dumbledore invented it in himself. I know, but you surely wouldn't have singled you out in his will just to help turn out the lights. Do you think he knew the Ministry would complicate his will and examine everything he left us? Asked Harry. Definitely, said Hermione. He couldn't tell us in the will why he was leaving us these things, but that still doesn't explain why he couldn't have given us a hint when he was alive? Asked Ron. Well, exactly, said Hermione, now flicking through the tails of the beetle and the bard. If these things are important enough to pass on right under the nose of the Ministry, you'd think he'd have let us know why, unless he thought it was obvious. Thought wrong then, didn't he, said Ron. I always said he was mental, brilliant and everything, but cracked, leaving Harry in an old snitch. What the hell was that about? I have no idea, said Hermione. When Scrimmageur made you take it, Harry, I was so sure that something was going to happen. Yeah, well, said Harry, his pulse quickening as he raised the snitch in his fingers. I wasn't going to try too hard in front of Scrimmageur, was I? What do you mean? asked Hermione. The snitch I caught in my first ever Quidditch match, said Harry. Don't you remember? <clears throat> Hermione looked simply bemused, but Ron, however, gasped, pointing frantically from Harry to the snitch and back again until he found his voice. That, that was the one you nearly swallowed. Exactly, said Harry, and with his heart beating fast, he pressed his mouth to the snitch. It did not open. Frustration and bitter disappointment welled up inside him. He lowered the golden sphere, but then Hermione cried out, Writing! There's writing on it! Quick, look! He nearly dropped the snitch in surprise and excitement. Hermione was quite right. Engraved upon the smooth golden surface, which seconds before had been nothing, were five words written in the thin, slanting handwriting that Harry recognized as Dumbledore's. I open at the close. He had barely read the words when they vanished again. I open at the close? What's that supposed to mean? 
Hermione and Ron shook their heads looking blank. I open at the close. At the close? I open at the close. But no matter how often they repeated the words, with many different inflections, they were unable to wring any more meaning from them. And the sword, said Ron finally, when they had at last abandoned their attempts to divine meaning from the snitch's inscription, why did he want Harry to have the sword? And why couldn't he have just told me, said Harry quietly. It was there. It was right on the wall of his office during all of our talks last year. He wanted me to have it. Why didn't he just give it to me then? He felt as though he was sitting in an examination with a question he ought to have been able to find the answer to in front of him. His brain was slow, unresponsive. Was there something he had missed in the long talks with Dumbledore last year? Ought he know what all of it had meant? Had Dumbledore expected him to understand? And as for this book, said Hermione, the tales of the beetle and the bard, I've never even heard of them. You've never heard of the tales of the beetle and the bard? said Ron incredulously. You're kidding, right? No, I'm not, said Ron, Hermione in surprise. Do you know them then? Well, of course I do. Harry looked up diverted. The circumstance of Ron having read a book that Hermione had not was unprecedented. Ron, however, looked bemused at, at their surprise. Oh, come on. All the old kids' stories are supposed to be the Beatles, aren't they? The Fountain of Fair Fortune, The Wizard in the Hopping Pot, Babbity Rabbity and her Cackling Stump. Excuse me, said Ron, Hermione giggling. What was that last one? Come off it, said Ron, looking in disbelief from Harry to Hermione. You must have heard of Babbity Rabbity. Ron, you know full well that Harry and I were brought by muggles, said Hermione. We didn't hear stories like that when we were little. We heard Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, Cinderella. What's that, an illness? asked Ron. So these are children's stories, asked Hermione again, bending over the runes. Yeah, said Ron uncertainly. I mean, that's just what you hear, you know. All these old stories came from Beetle. I don't know what they're like in the original versions. But I wonder why Dumbledore thought I should read them. Something creaked downstairs. Probably just Charlie. Now that Mom's asleep, he's sneaking off to regrow his hair, said Ron nervously. All the same, we should get to bed, whispered Hermione. It wouldn't do to oversleep tomorrow. Nope, agreed Ron. A brutal triple murder by the bridegroom's mother might put a bit of a damper on the wedding. I'll get the lights. And he clicked out the illuminator once more as Hermione left the room. And that takes us through chapter 7. And because I just read that chapter and Chase had mentioned earlier in this, this episode that he has something new on his uh, on his side for the visuals. I'll let Chase take it away, give his thoughts and breakdown, and tell you exactly what he has on his desk there. Yeah, so what I have for the visuals, so for everyone that's listening on the podcast that can't see, welcome back to the Hallmark <laughs> channel. This is where we break down this section of the show, all the visuals we have for the lovely ladies out there. <laughs> I'm just so take notes. I'm just messing with you. No, uh, Hermione Granger, I actually have on top of my desk here, uh, is the Tales of Beetle and the Bard, uh, which is exactly what Albus left Hermione Granger. And, uh, of course, they talked about Babbity Rabbity. What the hell was that? Um, doing some backstories on interesting facts. Uh, we talked about that a little bit, like, on one of our episodes earlier this season because... Um, that was mentioned in an interview that J.K. Rowling had in Babbity Rabbity. It was just a story about uh, this witch that basically was um, everyone was wondering how she was getting all this work done as a merchant and this uh, human uh, neighbor of hers got jealous. So he like kidnapped her and was about to like torture her and stuff because he found out she was a witch and he brought all these uh, people over. Um, to basically put her on trial well what happened was uh, she had this wart and in her wart was a wand so she pulled the wand out and turned into a rabbit and like escaped 
and then instead uh he they were left all this like business and stuff that he couldn't keep up with so long story short he went back begging the witch for uh her to come back and she would never come back and she actually turned the tree that she was supposed to be hung on into a stump and that stump has been there ever since so there were very dark uh stories actually (laughs) in this book believe it or not which jk rowling talked about in a interview was like um because the whole idea was especially with the ministry throughout this series you know they've had this controversy with muggles and um one thing that she wanted to bring up was like the difference between like wizard stories of children that they're told versus how muggles like to sugarcoat things and the controversy that was really there um one of my favorites in here that you mentioned was the fountain of fear of fortune which we mentioned in passing on an interesting facts episode because um when we were talking about chimeras and uh the sphinx and that sort of thing back in goblet of fire and that sort of thing um they used to do this play at hogwarts and uh the chimera got brought up because one of the professors brought it in to play a role and almost burned down part of the castle and they were inter- they were doing fountain of fair fortune so definitely look that up we talk about it on interesting facts it's 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 pretty pretty interesting stories but that's what's going on with my visuals here uh but i think the most important story that we made sure we never talked about ever even hinted at in interesting facts uh comes up huge later on in this book um and and really uh without that one story that's in this book um this entire series could have ended up different so looking forward to that and uh yeah guys y'all can go get Tales of Beetle and the Bard over at the Barnes and Noble bookstore. It's pretty cool. Actually, another fun fact we talked about an interesting fact. So, Tales of Beetle and the Bard was originally written, handwritten to the editors and um, the illustrators of the books just as a gift from J.K. Rowling. But uh, the fans, the diehard Potter fans, got so upset she didn't release it to the public. She eventually wound up releasing it to the public. And the first handwritten copy went out on an auction in London. We talked about it on Interesting Facts. It was something crazy, like $100,000 for a handwritten copy, which is really wild. Uh, with that, man, yeah, so go pick up Tales of Beetle and the Bard. It's in this blue cover here. I think you can even get like a nice pop-up illustrated edition if you're really into that. I'm more into like the actual books of the franchise because I'm a not i don't want to say like true harry potter fan but old school harry potter fan i would say and with that i'll uh turn it back over to jay nelly you want to get us started on chapter eight here man it's uh we're getting into the detail now so this one here it's i don't have much bullet points because there's a lot of detail that we have to read and um especially one of the relatives here she's not exactly the nicest person (laughs) that we wind up meeting here and introduced to a lot of different people so i'll let you kick us off man yeah well first i want to discuss the chapter that we read and some of the bigger takeaways that i kind of received from like the the will and the contents of the will like everything that was left to them is a foreshadow it's going to come into play later on like that's not a big shock anyone probably could have discerned that but the fact that dumbledore Mm kind of took the precautions to make sure that the ministry wasn't able to f- actually figure out the proper uses of what he was leaving, uh, th- like Hermione and Ron and Harry, was really impressive to me. 
And I also like the kind of unity they stuck together. Like, he wanted to kind of interrogate them separately to kind of, like, throw his weight around as a minister. And these, like, 17-year-olds weren't having it. They're like, nah, man, all together and not at all. And also, like, you know, that they, they, the ones they did get, the snitch, Tales of Being the Bard and the Deluminator, they was, Harry was also supposed to, get, supposed to be given the Sword of Godric Gryffindor. And when we were, it's funny because we were talking about the previous chapter, like, you know, in ways to, you know, what are some things that are as powerful as Basilisk Venom? Well, certain things are going to come up later on that I don't want to ruin anything for you, but there's a reason why Dumbledore left that sword to Harry as well. So I, I just gonna, it's going to be fun to see how long it takes them to figure out the uses of everything that Dumbledore had left them in his will. So very important stuff there. On top of that, the fact that like that big foreshadow of when Harry put his mouth to the snitch and it says, I open at the close, that's a huge like thing there. It's funny because when I first read it, I knew exactly like I I knew exactly what that meant. Like as mm-hmm. soon as I saw that, I was like, I, I know where this is going. So yeah. I just I did like it. It's a big foreshadow. I put yeah. myself right at the end of the novel. Um, that was good though. So those are the big kind of takeaways, you know that these these 17 year olds really stand up for themselves they're not taking anything from anyone usually people like you know think about the minister of magic like almost like the president of the united states you're supposed to hold him in some sort of reverence like you know you're supposed to be in awe of this guy like he's like the leader of the the free world in in the magical community he's the leader and you're supposed to kind of show him respect and kind of do what he says type of way not like you know anything crazy but at least like show some sort of respect and these people did not care they're like nah man you're, you're fucking up left and right you're keeping things from the public mad eye moody's dead he didn't say anything he didn't tell me when i got attacked by voldemort i got these damn scars in my hand again like that little four circle moment of like <laughs> yeah I, I must not tell lies you know so like i thought it was awesome they went kind of toe-to-toe with the minister and they held their ground and they uh they took everything of dumbledore's will and they have that now and all those things are going to come into play later on so those are some things i wanted to mention what are some of the things that you took away from that chapter as well yeah one like ron's an idiot (laughs) i definitely took that part away (laughs) like why like right when i'm starting to give him the benefit of the doubt then he's like why would al why would dumbledore leave harry some old snitch (laughs) get the fuck out of here (laughs) like dumbledore's just gonna leave harry a snitch because he's a good quidditch player like ron never fails to impress me because he never thinks outside the box ever ever (laughs) why would he leave him some old snitch yeah i I don't know why but uh just like you said i think um the massive uh another takeaway really is too like scrimmageor definitely knows something's up like he he knows something's up like there is no reason that think of i mean and i know like of course dumbledore was close to harry and and you know he knew ron and hermione very well uh, but at the same time, think of all the people Dumbledore knew in his life, and this is who he left in his will? Like, think of all the people Dumbledore knew in his life, and he chose these three children. So immediately they know something's going on. Like, something's very strange here. Um, on top of, uh, you know, I think these these items we do get. So the snitch... Uh, you know, Ron gets the de-illuminator, which, bringing it back all the way to Sorcerer's Stone, you can definitely tell how the books have matured a little, because it was the put-outer. <laughs> that was the put-outer back then. Um, and then, of course, Tales of Beetle and the Bard that Hermione got, that we just talked about. Each one plays such a significant role 
throughout the rest of this book, um, which really determines the whole series. Um, so, I mean, it's definitely the biggest takeaway I think you can have here is there's some sort of plan going on that we haven't been revealed yet. There's something going on that's that everyone even questions outside of Ronald Weasley, apparently. <laughs> but everyone's got some sort of plan. And, uh, you know, it's just really this is a major significant chapter. You take this chapter out of the book. It's entirely different. Definitely. For sure. Um, and yeah, with that, uh, you, you want me to kick us off on chapter eight or you want to take chapter eight? How so what I'm going to do is I'm going to, cause you said you're going to read a lot of like the chapter. So I'm going to do is I'm going to get to the points mm-hmm. where I don't have bullet holes anymore. And I'm going to let you just read the rest of it. So that way it kind of cool. goes smoothly. Uh, cause I have, a, I have a decent amount of bullet points that I can kind of read through. And then from a certain page, awesome. I'll let you take it to the end of the chapter. So the first part here on page 137 Perfect. Uh, Harry took the polyjuice potion and now he's like the body double of a red-headed muggle boy and he's going to be going by the name of Cousin Barney so that's going to be Harry at the wedding Cousin Barney <laughs> uh, I this is so sad for me Like I do, honestly I know it kind of gives a little bit away because I said it's sad but I don't care this is my guy I'm going to read this second paragraph here it says when I get yep. married said Fred tucking at the collar of his own robes I won't be bothering with any of this nonsense. You can all wear whatever you like, and I'll put a full body bind curse on mom until it's all over. So the reason why I just say, you know, it's to hear Fred talking about getting married. It makes me, you know, a little, little sad. Uh, but anyways, a little, little yeah, right, a little foreshadow yeah. there. I mean, everyone's known. I've talked about this since the very beginning. That guy's my favorite character in the whole series. So uh, on page 138, just two quick paragraphs on that. Just more about Fred and George just kind of goofing around and being funny. Uh, so this is what George said. He's like, excellent. I think I see a few Vila cousins, said George, craning his neck for a better look. They'll need help understanding our English customs. I'll look after them. Not so fast, your holiness, said Fred, darting past the gaggle of middle age which is heading into the procession. He said, here, permettez-moi to assist vous to a pair of pretty French girls who giggled and allowed him to escort them inside. And George was left to deal with the middle age witches, and Ron took charge of... Mr. Weasley's old ministry colleague Perkins which, and, and a rather uh, old deaf couple fell to Harry's lot. So Fred and George trying to flirt with the pretty Vila cousins at the wedding, trying to get a little, <laughs> little, uh, have a little fun at that little wedding crashers type moment. They're like, we're going to go ahead and have fun with these cousins. Um, but yes, now going on from that another bullet point, we learn why Lupin and Tonks had to rush out when the minister arrived last night. And it was because the ministry is being very anti-werewolf at the moment. And that's the you know the biggest thing is Lupin is mm-hmm. the werewolf that we all know have come to know and love, but there's also werewolves out there such as Fenrir Greyback, which is a problem. So they're you know the Ministry, like Harry said, they don't he doesn't agree with their tactics. So you know they're just trying to make it look like they're doing something. So they're being very anti werewolf right now. Um, mm-hmm. I thought it was kind of funny in page one thirty nine. Hagrid sat in the wrong spot and crushed the chairs. They had made like a like a specific chair for him that was enchanted to hold his weight, but he he went and sat in the wrong spot. And like like it's like the 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 legs crumpled like matchsticks underneath him when he sat down in it. So I just thought that was something really funny. Uh, we officially meet Xenophilius Lovegood. We get a bit of a foreshadow because there's a symbol around his neck. Don't want to give anything away there, but you know that's something that mm-hmm. we we see. That's a bit of a foreshadow when we meet him. Uh, I thought this was also kind of funny because they were talking about the garden gnomes and Ron says Fred and George actually taught their garden gnomes swear words. 
So just my guys being my guys, man, teaching the gnome <laughs> swear words. Uh, then page 140, this is this is something funny I thought. Like, you know, Luna, Luna Lovegood, she may be odd and quirky, but she's actually very intelligent. She identifies Harry, even though he is taking the form of another person with a polyjuice potion. So, like... Like yeah. she's like she's like how did he's like how did you know it was me? She's like oh just your expression, which kind of goes to show why the Sorting Hat knows what it's doing when they put her in Ravenclaw. She's not an idiot. She's very yeah. intelligent. She just doesn't come off as that prototypical book smart intelligent person. She's very spacey and very odd and very quirky, but she's very smart as well. Uh, so I thought that was pretty mm-hmm. cool. According to Xenophilius Lovegood, Garden Gnome bites are a good thing and their saliva is beneficial. So that's. <laughs> That's interesting. Uh, page 141, we meet Auntie Muriel. And like Chase had been mentioning, you know, she's been alluded to throughout the entire series. Like we've heard of her sporadically throughout the entire series, but we finally meet her and she's kind of fucking mean. She's like actually like really mean. Yeah, she's, she's an ass. Really, yeah, she sucks. She, and she's 107 years old. So that's the main thing I want to mention about her. Um, page 142, I'm just going to read the second paragraph about Muriel writing Fred and George out of her will. So that's a little bit funny there. She says, Nightmare Muriel is, said Ron, mopping his forehead on his sleeve. She used to come around for Christmas every year. Then thank God she took offense because Fred and George set off a dung bomb under her chair at dinner. And Dad always says she'll have written them out of her will. Like like they care. They're going to end up richer than anyone in the family at the rate that they're going. So I thought that was pretty cool because, you know, obviously they don't have, like, the Weasleys, they don't come from a lot of money, especially, like, Arthur and Molly all this time. Like, they're, like, you know, almost like rags to riches. Fred and George made something out of themselves. And Ron said, like, he, like, Auntie Miro is very, very well off, very wealthy. And, like, you know, usually you'd be kind (laughs) of sad if your rich uh, relative wrote you out of the will. But Fred and George don't care. They're making more money than anyone. They're good. Like, like, we're going to do us no matter what. We're going to be us. So I love that. And then in page 142, a little bit down below, we get a full circle moment from the prisoner of Azkaban when we hear about Uncle Billius. He was the one who died 24 mm-hmm. hours after seeing the Grim. So I thought that was really cool. Yeah. We got a cool foreshadow there. So from page 143, I'll let you go ahead and take it and read to the end of the chapter because that's just the bullet points I had. So go ahead and take it from page 143. One of my favorites is back. <laughs> I've got drinks. <laughs> yeah. That's all you, man. Uh, I did want to bring up this little point um, just on Auntie Muriel. Remember, she kept talking about she wanted Floor to wear that tiara. Yeah. And it was almost more pushing on, like, the Weasley suck. They have no money. <laughs> like she needs to wear this massive tear like the bride that you have basically no relation to pretty much like no direct relation we're my beautiful tear so everyone knows about me like how great uh interesting fact i brought it up uh, a long time ago on actually our sunday episodes that tiara is so expensive she had it handmade by yep. goblins <laughs> like wow just another you know push in the face there uh, so this is on page 143. Talk about full circle moments. One of my favorite boys yep, is back. back. One of Ron's favorite boys, I would say. One of Ron's favorites. So it says, at the, we'll start on the, on the bottom of 142. Um, so let's see. Here we go. They were all laughing so much that none of them noticed the latecomer. A dark-haired young man with large curved nose and thick black eyebrows. Until he held out his invitation to Ron and said with his eyes on Hermione, 
You look wonderful. Victor! She shrieked and dropped her small beaded bag, which made a loud thump quite disappropriate, uh, proportionate to its size. As she scrambled, blushing to pick it up, she said, I didn't know you were... Goodness, it's lovely to see you. How are you? Ron's ears had turned bright red again. After glancing at Crumb's invitation, as if he did not believe a word of it, he said much too loudly, How come you're here? <laughs> Flora invited me, said Crumb, eyebrows raised. Harry, who had no grudge against Crumb, shook hands and then, feeling that it would be prudent to remove Crumb from Ron's vicinity, offered to show him the seat. Your friend is not pleased to see me, said Crumb, as they entered the now-packed marquee. Or is he a relative, he added with a glance at Harry's red curly hair. Cousin, Harry muttered, but Crumb was not really listening. His appearance was causing a stir, particularly amongst the Vila cousins. He was, after all, a famous Quidditch player. While people were still craning their necks to get a good look at him, Ron, Hermione, Fred, and George came hurrying down the aisle. Time to sit down, Fred told Harry, or we're going to get a run over by the bride. Harry, Ron, and Hermione took their seats in the second row behind Fred and George. Hermione looked rather pink, and Ron's ears were still scarlet. After a few moments, he muttered to Harry, Did you see his grown, stupid little beard? Harry gave a non-committal grunt. A sense of jittery anticipation had filled the warm tent, the general murmuring broken by occasional spurts of excited laughter. Mr. and Miss Weasley strolled up the aisle, smiling and waving at relatives. Miss Weasley was wearing a brand new set of amethyst-colored robes with a matching hat. A moment later, Bill and Charlie stood up at the front of the marquee, both wearing dress robes with large white roses in their buttonholes. Fred Wolf whistled, and then there was an outbreak of giggling from the Vila cousins. Then the crowd fell silent as music swelled from what seemed to be golden balloons. Ooh! said Hermione, swiveling around in her seat to look at the entrance. A great collective sigh issued from the assembled witches and wizards at Monsieur Delacour and Fleur came walking up the aisle, Fleur gliding. Monsieur Delacour, bouncing and beaming, Fleur was wearing a very simple white dress and seemed to be emitting a strong silvery glow. While her radiance usually dimmed everyone else by comparison, today it beautified, beautified everybody it fell upon. Jenny and Gabrielle, both wearing golden dresses, looked even prettier than usual, and once Floor had reached them, Bill did not look as though he had ever met Fenier Greyback. Ladies and gentlemen, said a slightly sing-song voice, and with a slight shock, Harry saw the small, tufty-haired wizard who had presided at Dumbledore's funeral, now standing in front of Bill and Floor. We are gathered here today to celebrate the union of two faithful souls. Yes, my tiara sets off the whole thing nicely, said Aunt Muriel in a rather carrying whisper. But I must say, Genvera's dress is far too low cut. Jenny glanced around, grinning, winked at Harry, and then quickly faced the front again. Harry's mind wandered a long way from the marquee, back to afternoons spent alone with Jenny in lonely parts of school grounds. They seemed so long ago. They had always seemed too good to be true, as though he had been stealing shining hours from a normal person's life, a person whose lightning-shaped scar on his forehead. Do you, William, take Floor Isabel? In the front row, Miss Weasley and Madame Delacour were both sobbing quietly into scraps of lace. Trumpet-like sounds from the back of the marquee told everyone that Hagrid had taken out on one of his 
own tablecloth-sized handkerchiefs. Hermione turned and beamed at Harry. Her eyes, too, were full of tears. Then I declare you bonded for life. The tufty-haired wizard waved his wand high over the heads of Bill and Floor, and a shower of silver stars fell upon them, spiraling around their now entwined fingers as Fred and George let a round of applause and golden balloons overhead burst, birds of paradise and tiny golden bells flew and floated out of them, adding their songs and chimes to the den. Ladies and gentlemen, called the tufty haired wizard, if you would please stand up. They all did so, Aunt Mariel grumbling audibly. He waved his wand again. The seats on which they had been sitting rose gracefully into the air as the canvas walls of the marquee vanished so that they stood beneath a canopy supported by golden poles with a glorious view of the sunlit orchard and surrounding countryside. Next, they pull a molten gold spread from the center of the tent to form a gleaming dance floor. The hovering chairs grouped themselves around the small white cloth table tables, which all floated gracefully back to earth around it, and the golden jacketed band trooped toward a podium. Smooth, said Ron, approving approvingly as the waiters popped up all on the sides some bearing silver trays of pumpkin juice butter beer and fire whiskey others tottering piles of tarts and sandwiches we should go and congratulate them said hermione standing on tiptoe to see the place where bill and floor had vanished amid a crowd of well-wishers we'll have time later shrugged ron snatching three butter beers from a passing tray and handing one to harry hermione coppled let's grab a table not there nowhere near Muriel. Ron led the way across the empty dance floor, glancing left and right as he went. Harry felt sure that he was keeping an eye out for Crumb. By the time they had reached the other side of the marquee, most of the tables were occupied. The emptiest was the one where Luna sat alone. All right, if we join you, asked Ron. Oh, yes, she said happily. Daddy's just gone to give Bill and Floor our present. What is it, a lifetime supply of Gertie Roots? asked Ron. Hermione aimed a kick under the table, but Harry caught him instead. Eyes watering in pain, Harry lost track of the conversation for a few moments. The band had begun to play. Bill and Floor took the dance floor first. To great applause after a while, Mr. Weasley led Madame Delacour onto the floor, followed by Miss Weasley and Floor's father. I like this song, said Luna, swaying in time to the waltz-like tune. And a few seconds later, they stood up and glided onto the dance floor where she revolved on the spot quite alone, eyes closed and waving her arms. She's great, isn't she? <laughs> said Ron admittingly. Always good value. But the smile vanished from his face at once. Victor Crumb had dropped into Luna's vacant seat. Hermione looked pleasurably flustered. But this time, Crumb had not come to compliment her. With a scowl on his face, he said, Who is the man in the yellow? That's Xenophilius Lovegood. He's the father of a friend of ours, said Ron. His pugnacious tone indicated that they were not about to laugh at Xenophilius, despite the clear provocation. Come and dance, he added abruptly to Hermione. She looked taken aback, but pleased to, and got up. They vanished together into the growing throng on the dance floor. Are they together now? asked Crumb, momentarily distracted. Uh, sort, sort of, said Harry. Who are you? Crumb asked. Barney Weasley. They shook hands. You, Barney, you know this man Lovegood well? No, I only met him today. Why? 
Crumb glowered over the top of his drinks, watching Xenophilius, who was chatting to several warlocks on the other side of the dance floor. Because, said Crumb, if he's thus not guest of floors, I would duel him here and now for bearing that filthy sign upon his chest. Sign, said Harry, looking over at Xenophilius too. The strange triangular eye was gleaming on his chest. Why, what's wrong with it? Grindelwald. That is Grindelwald's sign. Grindelwald? The dark wizard Dumbledore defeated? Exactly. Crumb's jaw muscles worked as if he were chewing. Then he said, Grindelwald killed many people. My father, for instance. My grandfather, for instance. Of course, he was never powerful in this country. And they said he feared Dumbledore. And rightly, seeing how he was finished but this he pointed a finger at xenophilius this is his symbol i recognized it at once grindelwald carved it on the wall at durmstrang then a Voss pupil there some idiots copied it onto their books and clothes thinking to shock make themselves impressive until those of us who had lost family members to grindelwald taught them better Crumb crackled his knuckles menacingly and glowered at Xenophilius. Harry felt perplexed. It seemed incredibly unlikely that Luna's father was a supporter of the dark arts, and nobody else in the tent seemed to have recognized the triangular moonlight shape. Are you, uh, quite sure it's Grindelwald's? I am not mistaken, said Crumb coldly. I've walked past the sign for years. I know it well. Well, there's a chance, said Harry, that Xenophilius doesn't actually know what the symbol means. The lovebirds are quite unusual. He could easily have picked it up somewhere and think it's a cross-section of the head of a crumple-horned snorkak or something. The cross-section of what? Well, I don't know what they are, but apparently he and his daughter go on holidays looking for them. Harry felt he was doing a bad job explaining Luna and her father. That's her, he said, pointing at Luna, who was still dancing alone, waving her arms around her head like someone attempting to beat off midges. Why is she doing that? asked Crumb. Probably trying to get rid of Raxpert, said Harry, who recognized the symptoms. Crumb did not seem to know whether or not Harry was making fun of him. He drew his wand from inside his robes and tapped it menacingly on his thigh. Sparks flew out from the end. Gringrovich, said Harry loudly, and Crumb started... But Harry was too excited to care. The memory had come back to him at the sight of Crumb's wand, all Vander taking it and examining it carefully before the Triwizard Tournament. What about him? asked Crumb suspiciously. He's a wand maker. I know that, said Crumb. He made your wand. That's what I thought. Quidditch. Crumb was looking more and more suspicious. How do you know Gringovich made it's my Grigorovich. wand? Gringovich. I... I <laughs> Grigorovich <laughs> took the O out there. How do you know Grigorovich made my wa- my wand? I I read it somewhere. I think said Harry in a a fan magazine. He improvised wildly, and Crumb looked mollified. I had not realized I ever discussed my wand with fans. He said, "Sir, where is Grigorovich these days?" Crumb looked puzzled. He retired several years ago. I was one of the last to purchase Grigorovich wand. They are the best, although I know, of course, that you Britons set much store by Ollivander. Harry did not answer. He pretended to watch the dancers like Crumb, but he was thinking hard. 
So Voldemort was looking for a celebrated wand maker and Harry did not have to search far for reason. It was surely because of what Harry's wand had done on that night that Voldemort had pursued him across the skies. The holly and phoenix feather wand had conquered the borrowed wand, something that Ollivander had not anticipated or understood. Would Grigorovich know better? Was he truly more skilled than Ollivander? Did he know secrets of wands that Ollivander did not? This girl is very nice looking, Crumb said, recalling Harry to his surroundings. Crumb was pointing at Jenny, who had just joined Luna. She is also a relative of yours? Yeah, said Harry, suddenly irritated. And she's seeing someone. Jealous type. Big bloke. You wouldn't want to cross him, Crumb grunted. What? He said, draining his goblet and getting to his feet again. Is the point of being an international Quidditch player if all the good-looking girls are taken? And he strode off, leaving Harry to take a sandwich from a passing waiter and then make his way around the edge of the crowded dance floor. He wanted to find Ron to tell him about Grigorovich, but Ron was dancing with Hermione out in the middle of the floor. Harry leaned up against one of the golden pillars and watched Jenny, who was now dancing with Fred and George's friend Lee Jordan, trying not to feel resentful about the promise he had given Ron. He had never been to a wedding before, so he could not judge how wizarding celebrations differed from muggle ones, though he was pretty sure that the latter would not involve a wedding cake topped with two model phoenixes that took flight when the cake was cut, or bottles of champagne that floated unsupported through the crowd, and as evening drew in and moths began to swoop under the canopy, now lit with floating golden lanterns, the revelry became more and more uncontained. Fred and George had long since long since disappeared into the darkness with a pair of Floor's cousins. Charlie Hagrid and a squat wizard in a purple pork pie hat were singing Odo the Hero in a corner, wandering through the crowd so as to escape the drunken uncle of Ron's, who seemed unsure whether or not Harry was his son. Harry spotted an old wizard sitting alone at a table. His cloud of white hair made him look rather like an aged dandelion clock and was taught by a moth-eaten fez. He was vaguely familiar. Racking his brains, Harry suddenly realized that this was Aphelius Doge, member of the Order of the Phoenix and the writer of Dumbledore's obituary. Harry approached him. May I sit down? Of course, of course, said Doge. He had a rather high-pitched, wheezy voice. Harry leaned in. Mr. Doge, I'm Harry Potter. Doge gasped. My dear boy, Arthur told me you were here, disguised. I am so glad, so honored. In a flutter of nervous pleasure, Doge poured Harry a goblet of champagne. I thought of riding you, he whispered after Dumbledore. The shock, and for you, I'm sure. Doge's tiny eyes filled with sudden tears. I saw the obituary you wrote for the Daily Prophet, said Harry. I didn't realize you knew Professor Dumbledore so well. As well as anyone, said Doge, dabbing his eyes with a napkin. Certainly I knew him the longest, if you don't count Aberforth, and somehow... People never do seem to count Aberforth. Speaking of the Daily Prophet, I don't know whether you saw Mr. Doge. Oh, please call me Aphelius, dear boy. Aphelius, I don't know whether you saw the interview Rita Skeeter gave about Dumbledore. Doge's face flooded with angry color. Oh, yes, Harry, I saw it. That woman or vulture might be a more accurate term. Positively pestered me to talk to her. I'm ashamed to say that I became rather rude. 
called her an interfering trout, which resulted, as you may have seen, in aspersions cast upon my sanity. Well, in that interview, here he went on, Rita Skeeter hinted that Professor Dumbledore was involved in the dark arts when he was young. Don't believe a word of it, said Doge at once. Not a word, Harry. Let nothing tarnish your memories of Albus Dumbledore. Harry looked into Doge's earnest, pained face and felt no reassured but frustrated. But Doge really think it was that easy that Harry could simply choose not to believe? Didn't Doge understand Harry needs to be sure to know everything? Perhaps Doge suspected Harry's feelings for he looked concerned and hurried on. Harry, Rita Skeeter is dreadful. But he was interrupted by a shrill cackle. Rita Skeeter? Oh, I love her. Always read her. Harry and Doge looked up to see Aunt Muriel standing there. The plumes dancing on her hat, a goblet of champagne in her hand. She's written a book about Dumbledore, you know. Hello, Muriel, said Doge. Yes, we were just discussing. You there. Give me a chair. I'm a hundred and seven. Another red-headed Weasley cousin jumped off his seat, looking alarmed, and Aunt Muriel swung it around with a surprising strength and plopped herself down upon it between Doge and Harry. "'Hello again, Barry, or whatever your name is,' she said to Harry. "'Now, what were you saying about Rita Skeeter, Elphilius? "'You know she's written a biography on Dumbledore. I can't wait to read it. "'I must remember to place an order at Flourish and Bots.' Doge looked stiff and solemn at this, but Aunt Muriel drained her goblet and clicked her bony fingers at a passing waiter for a replacement. She took another large gulp of champagne, belched, and then said, There's no need to look like a pair of stuffed frogs. Before he became so respected and respectable at all the tosh, there were some mighty funny rumors about Albus. Ill-informed sniping, said Doge, turning radish color again. You would say that, Alphelius, cackled Aunt Muriel. I noticed how you skated over the sticky patches in the obituary of yours. I'm sorry you think so, said Doge more coldly still. I assure you, I was writing from the heart. Oh, we all know you worship Dumbledore. I dare say you still think he was a saint, even if it does turn out that he did way, did away with the squib sister. Muriel, exclaimed Doge. A chill that had nothing to do with the ice champagne was stealing through Harry's chest. "'What do you mean?' asked Muriel. "'Who said his sister was a squib? I thought she was ill.' "'Thought wrong, then, didn't you, Barry?' said Aunt Muriel, looked delighted at the effect she had produced. "'Anyway, how could you expect to know anything about it? It all happened years and years before you were even thought of, my dear.' And the truth is that those of us who were alive then never knew what really happened. That's why I can't wait to find out Skeeter's on Earth. Dumbledore kept the sister of his quiet for a long time. Untrue, wheezed Doge. Absolutely untrue. He never told me his sister was a squib, said Harry, without thinking still cold inside. And why on earth would he tell you, screeched Muriel, swaying a little in her seat as she attempted to focus upon Harry. The reason Albus never spoke about Ariana, began Alphelius in a voice stiff with emotion, is I, I should have thought quite clear, he was so devastated by her death. Why did nobody ever see her, Alphelius? squawked Muriel. Why did half of us never even know she existed? 
until they carried the coffin out of the house and held a funeral for her, where was saintly Albus, while Ariana was locked in a cellar, off being brilliant at Hogwarts and never mind what was going on in his own house? What do you mean locked in a cellar? asked Harry. What is this? Doge looked wretched. Auntie Meryl crackled again and answered Harry. Dumbledore's mother was a terrifying woman. Simply terrifying. Muggleborn, though I heard she pretended otherwise. She never pretended anything of the sort. Kendra was a fine woman, whispered Doge miserably. Aunt Muriel ignored him. Proud and very domineering. The sort of witch who would have been mortified to produce a squib. Ariana was not a squib, wheezed Doge. So you say, Ophelius, but explain then why she never attended Hogwarts, said Aunt Muriel. She turned back to Harry. In our day, squibs were often hushed up, though to take it to the extreme of actually imprisoning a little girl in a house and pretending she didn't exist. I tell you that's not what happened, said Doge. But Aunt Muriel steamrolled on, still addressing Harry. Squibs were usually shipped off to muggle schools and encouraged to integrate into the muggle community. Much kinder than trying to find them a place in the wizarding world, where they must always be second class, but naturally, Kindred Dumbledore wouldn't have dreamed of letting her daughter go to muggle school. Ariana was a delicate, said Doge desperately. Her health was always too poor to permit her to, permit her to leave the house, cackled Muriel. And yet she was never taken to St. Mungo's and no healer was ever summoned to see her. Really, Muriel, how can you possibly know whether... For your information, Ophelius, my cousin Lancelot was a healer at St. Mungo's, Mungo's at the time. And he told my family in the strictest confidence that Ariana had never been seen there. Almost suspicious, Lancelot thought... Doge looked to be on the verge of tears. Aunt Muriel, who seemed to be enjoying herself hugely, snapped her fingers for more champagne. Numbly, Harry thought of how the Dursleys had once shut him up, locked him away, kept him out of sight, all for the crime of being a wizard. Had Dumbledore's sisters suffered the same fate in reverse, imprisoned for a lack of magic? And had Dumbledore truly left her to the fate of while he went off to Hogwarts to prove himself brilliant and talented? Now, if Kendra hadn't died first, Mariel resumed, I'd have said that it was she who finished off Ariana. How can you, how can you, Mariel? groaned Doge. A mother kill her own daughter? Think of what you're saying. If the mother in question was capable of imprisoning her daughter for years on end, why not? Shrugged Aunt Mariel. But as I say, it doesn't see fit because Kendra died before Ariana. Of what nobody ever seemed sure. Oh, no doubt Ariana murdered her, said Doge, with a brave attempt at scorn. Why not? Yes, Ariana might have made a desperate bid for freedom and killed Kendra in the struggle, said Auntie Muriel thoughtfully. Shake your head all you like, Elphilius. You were at Ariana's funeral, were you not? Yes, I was, said Doge, through trembling lips. And in more desperately an occasion I cannot remember, Albus was heartbroken. His heart wasn't the only thing. Didn't Albus, didn't Alberforth break Albus's nose halfway through the service? If Doge had looked horrified before this, it was nothing to how he looked now. Muriel might have stabbed him. 
She cackled loudly and took another swig of champagne, which dribbled down her chin. How do you? croaked Doge. My mother was friendly with old Bethilda Bagshot, said Auntie Muriel happily. Bethilda described the whole thing to mother while I was listening at the door. A coffin-side brawl. The way Bethilda told it, Aberforth shouted that it was all Albus's fault that Ariana was dead and then punched him in the face. According to Bethilda, Albus did not de even defend himself. And that's an odd enough in itself. Albus could have destroyed Aberforth in a duel with both hands tied behind his back. Muriel swigged yet more champagne. The recitation of these old scandals seemed to elate her as much as they horrified Doge. Harry did not know what to think, what to believe. He wanted the truth, and yet all Doge did was sit there and bleat feebly that Ariana had been ill. Harry could hardly believe that Dumbledore would not have intervened if such cruelty was happening inside his own house, and yet there was undoubtedly something odd about the story. And I tell you something else, Muriel said, hiccuping loudly as she lowered her goblet. I think, Bethilda has spilled the beans to Rita Skeeter. All those hints in Skeeter's interview about an important source close to Dumbledore's? Goodness knows, she was there all through Ariana's business, and it would fit. Bethilda would never talk to Rita Skeeter, whispered Doge. Bethilda Bagshot, Harry said, the author of A History of Magic? The name was printed on the front of one of Harry's textbooks, though admittedly not one of the ones he had read most attentively. Yes, said Doge, clutching at Harry's question like a drowning man at a life belt. A most gifted magical historian and an old friend of Albus's. Quite gig gaga these days, I've heard, said Aunt Muriel cheerfully. If that is so, it is even more dishonorable for Skeeter to have taken advantage of her, said Doge. And no resilience can be placed on anything Bethilda may have said. Oh, there are ways of bringing back memories, and I'm sure Rita Skeeter knows them all, said Aunt Muriel. But even if Bethilda's completely cuckoo, I'm sure she'd still have old photographs, maybe even letters. She knew the double doors for years. Well, worth a trip to Godric's Hollow, I'd, I'd have thought. Here you had been taking a sip of Butterbeer choked. Doge banged up on the back as Harry coughed, looking at Aunt Muriel through streaming eyes. Once he had control of his own voice again, he asked, Bethilda Bagshot lives in Godric's Hollow? Oh, yes. She's been there forever. The Dumbledores moved there after Percival was imprisoned, and she was their neighbor. The Dumbledores lived in Godric's Hollow? Yes, Barry, that's what I said, said Aunt Muriel testily. Harry felt drained to empty. Never once in six years had Dumbledore told Harry that they had both lived and lost loved ones in Godric's Hollow. Why? Were Lily and James buried close to Dumbledore's mother and sister? Had Dumbledore visited their graves, perhaps walked past Lily and James to do so? And he had never once told Harry. Never bothered to say. And why it was so important, Harry could not explain even to himself. Yet he felt it had been tantamount to a lie not to tell him that they had this place and these experiences in common. He stared ahead of him, barely noticing what was going on around him, and did not realize that Hermione had appeared out of the crowd until she drew up a chair beside him. I simply can't dance anymore, she panted. 
slipping off one of her shoes and rubbing the sole of her foot. Ron's gone looking to find more butterbeers. It's a bit odd. I've just seen Victor storming away from Luna's father. It looked like they had been arguing. She dropped her voice, staring at him. Harry, are you okay? Harry did not know where to begin. But it did not matter. At that moment, something large and silver came falling through the canopy over the dance floor. Graceful and gleaming, the lynx landed lightly in the middle of the astonished dancers. Heads turned as those nearest it froze absurdly in mid-dance. Then the Patronus's mouth opened wide and it spoke to the loud, deep, slow voice of Kingsley Shacklebolt. The ministry has fallen. Scrimmageur is dead. They are coming. And that'll do chapter eight, man. But uh, we definitely find out. So maybe Dumbledore has a pretty dark past that we all thought everything was all good and lighthearted in Dumbledore through all these years. And, you know, he was the greatest guy. But according to Aunt Mariel at age 107, he was not the best person in the world. Uh, also, we kind of learn Aunt Mariel isn't the nicest person in the world. But, yeah, give us your thoughts on Chapter 8, man. <clears throat> Sounds good. The first thing, and this really isn't that important, but the guy's name is Elphias Doge, not Elphilius. I don't know where the extra L's and I's uh, came in. But, anyways. You know, I'm the worst <laughs> with names. Elphilius. Elphilius. <laughs> um, it would have been better. His mom should have renamed him. <laughs> right? Definitely. So the things I thought were kind of funny, these are just interesting tidbits that I found. Remember back in the Yule Ball, back in Goblet of Fire, Ron like refused to dance with uh, the Patil sister, um, Padma Patil. Yeah. She's like, are you going to ask me to dance? And Ron says, no. But now because like Victor shows up, Ron's like, you're coming to dance with me, Hermione. You're coming right on the dance floor. So I thought it was kind of funny how he's grown from not going to dance with a girl to dragging Hermione out on the dance floor and at the end of the very chapter one of the last things you read she's like she like walked off the dance floor like rubbing her feet because she was so I can't dance anymore Ron just keeps wanting to dance it's just <laughs> really really funny how he's changed uh, so much over the time um, I also that that pretty big moment too when Victor uh, he wants to duel Xenophilius Lovegood over the symbol on his neck and that's yeah. going to be a big uh, thing going forward a big foreshadow that symbol we talked about you know, it was a sign of Grindelwald. That's what he said. Like Victor Huge. told him, like at school in Durmstrang, it was like written on the wall, like that that sign of Grindelwald, which is huge of what's to come later on, and that actually helped Harry remember Grigorovich, who is the wand maker, and that's a huge foreshadow too of what that what Voldemort wants Grigorovich for. So now we know he's a wand maker. You know, so there's there's going to be some correlation between that torturing of Ollivander and searching for Grigorovich. So that was going to come up really really big. Uh, I thought also, like you were mentioning, we're hearing more potentially incriminating stuff about Dumbledore's past. Like, and now it's gone yeah. past just Rita Skeeter writing some stuff in an article. Now it's like like Auntie Muriel who has like remember she had that healer. Her cousin Lancelot was a healer, never saw Ariana, so she's got that firsthand knowledge. She heard from Bethilda Bagshot, who was talking to her own mother about the funeral when Al Aberforth broke Albus's nose at the funeral. Like. Like, all these things, like, these things happen. These things are really huge moments, and Harry knew none of this. He didn't even know Dumbledore lived in Godric's Hollow. Like, this is all brand new, crazy information. Really interesting stuff about Dumbledore where you were starting to learn everything was sunshine and rainbows with the Dumbledores, no matter how he, like, perceived himself, you know, in his later years that we got to read about through the series. 
his past, there is some stuff there. So that's definitely interesting. And Bethilda Bagshot herself, that's going to be a huge foreshadow of what's to come later in this in this yeah. book. Because, you know, obviously she's someone that, that we're going to need. And the very last things that I have, number one, I thought it's cool that Kingsley Shacklebolt's Patronus is a lynx. But also just what it yeah. says. Honestly, like that that is one of my favorite lines in the whole series. The ministry has fallen. Scrimmageur is dead. They are coming. Like that just gives me chills, man. Like that's so badass. Yeah, so those are what the kind of what I took oh, from it. Is there anything you want to add to it, or was it kind of the same stuff? Like, what did you take away? Uh, pretty much the same stuff. Um, I feel bad for Crumb, yeah. man. Like, I feel like Crumb always gets like the short end of the stick. Even going back full circle to Goblet of Fire, like he never even had any problems with Ron. Like, he really didn't even know like Ron liked Hermione at the time. I remember, he was even he came up to them at the ball after. You know, Ron like was just sitting there, and Hermione stormed off, and he was like, "I got drinks. <laughs> Where's Hermione?" Like he's like a super. He's like the nicest guy. Like he's like the nicest guy to everyone, and Ron's just always like a, an ass to him. Like just straight up an ass. And you know, Ron was sitting there. It was almost like that Vince Vaughn in Wedding Crashers. Like he was like. Oh, why'd I have to go get, go showing off like that? I know I'm a good dancer. You know, Ron was on that dance floor just looking over the whole time. Keep dancing, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Keep going. We're not done yet. We're not done yet. <laughs> Such an ass. Meanwhile, like, Victor Crumb doesn't give two shits about Ron and Hermione. He's over here worried about Grigorovich with Harry, and Ron's over there like, fuck you, <laughs> Fuck you, man. <laughs> So, like, I just, like, that's the only thing I wanted to bring up. Like, I feel like Crumb always gets a short in his dick. This dude is, like, just like he said, this dude walks into the party, like, all the girls should be all over him. It is literally, like, literally, if, like, what's a good example for football, let's say. So, this is if Tom Brady walks into a party, but five years ago, where he already had, like, three rings, Girls should be everywhere on this guy. Girls should be everywhere. And he's sitting there. And, like, he's like, all right. Like, he's taking my girl. Whatever. Time's passed. I'll get over it. Then he looks at the other girl. And then fucking Harry's like, she's seeing somebody. Big bloke. Big bloke. (laughs) What the fuck, man? (laughs) Like, what's your deal? Go fuck off. Fuck off. (laughs) That's exactly what I was like. I would be sitting there as, as crumb. I'd be like. I'm a world Quidditch competitor. I don't really know what you are. I'm sorry. <laughs> I would have just walked up to Jenny at that moment, taking her hand right on the floor and be like, hey, you like to dance? And she was like, oh my gosh, it's Victor Crumb. It's Victor Crumb. And Harry would have been sitting there, just sitting there pissed like, oh, relax. That's not Harry. That's just Barney. <laughs> That's Barney, the cousin. That's your cousin, though. I didn't know you had a thing for your cousin. <laughs> I don't know, man. I felt, I felt terrible for him. And this is like his, like, you know, this is that full circle moment for Crumb. Because we really don't get to see him much anymore. Like, this is it for Crumb, really, for the series. Like, this is it. Like, he has those tiny little moments. And, uh, you know, it's, 
It's kind of like a sad ending for him, man. Like, that was it. Like, he's... Kind bye. of. See you later. Thanks for saying bye. But, like, at the end of the day, he dropped some heavy knowledge on Harry. Like, that's Grindelwald's sign. Like, that's going to yeah. be really big. So, yeah, he only gets, like, a small part. And it's, like, you know, oh, well, bye, Crumb. But, like, he drops a fucking anvil on him. Like, <laughs> this is, like, dark. Like, yeah. outside of Voldemort, the other darkest wizard of all time. This is his sign that's on Xenophilius's like, necklace. So... There's, there's something to be said for it, yeah. for sure. Yeah, man, and with that, I'll, uh, you know, just throwing this on the side, I feel like it would have been cool to kind of, like, have maybe, like, Crumb come in at the very end, try to, like, save the day. <laughs> maybe he, like, soars in on his broomstick. He faints. Like, he faints like one of the Death Eaters, and they crash into the ground. Like, that would have been awesome. <laughs> okay, see, this is why I didn't... I would. This is why I didn't edit the book for J.K. Rowling. I'd be like, are you really missing this one part about Chrome, though? Like, where's that? It's <laughs> where's so funny. For, for all those people <laughs> who are, like, like listening and can't see my face, like, while he was saying that, I was just sitting here shaking my head, like, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I was looking for the fainting full circle. The yeah. full circle faint attack. <laughs> no, man. It's, uh, but it was a great chapter. You find out so much information here. Uh, and you're really starting to question, like, whether everything you've kn- we've known from the beginning about Albus is a lie um, and what's going on there. Um, but, yeah, with that, I'm going to let you go ahead and take us with this next chapter because this next chapter is action-packed really from the beginning to the end, man. So I'll let That's you take right. it from here, brother. 100%. Yeah, this this one's definitely going to be a story time with Chase and Josh with this chapter because i got to read it front <laughs> to back, man, everything that happens. And honestly, that's what I did my interesting fact on, the place where they end up here in just a second. So remember when we just kind of left off with that chapter, like that uh, Patronus came in, said the Ministry has fallen, Scrimmageor is dead, they are coming, and here we go into chapter 9. Everything seemed fuzzy, slow. Harry and Hermione jumped to their feet and drew their wands. Many people were only just realizing that something strange had happened. Heads were still turning towards the silver cat as it had vanished. Silence spread outward in cold ripples from the place where the Patronus had landed. Then somebody screamed. Harry and Hermione threw themselves into the panicking crowd. Guests were sprinting in all directions. Many were disapparating. The protective enchantments around the burrow had broken. Ron! Hermione cried. Ron, where are you? As they pushed their way across the dance floor, Harry saw cloaked and masked figures appearing in the crowd. Then he saw Lupin and Tonks, their wands raised, and heard both of them shout, Protego! And a cry that was echoed on all sides. Ron! Ron! Hermione half called, half sobbing, as she and Harry were buffeted by terrifying guests. Harry seized her hand to make sure they weren't separated as a streak of light whizzed over their heads, whether a protective charm or something more sinister. He did not know. And then Ron was there. He caught hold of Hermione's free arm, and Harry felt her turn on the spot. Sight and sound were extinguished, and darkness pressed in upon him. All he could feel was Hermione's hand as he was squeezed through space and time, away from the burrow, away from the descending Death Eaters, away, perhaps, from Voldemort himself. "'Where are we?' said Ron's voice. Harry opened his eyes, and for a moment he thought they had, left, they had not left the wedding at all. They all seemed to be surrounded by people. "'Tottenham Court Road,' panted Hermione. "'Walk. Just walk. We need to find somewhere for you to change.' And that's what it, my interesting fact on, actually, guys, is Tottingham Court Road, as a side note. Anyway, uh, Harry did as she was asked. <laughs> they half-walked, half-ran up the wide, dark street, thronged with late-night revelers and lined with closed shops, stars twinkling above them. A double-decker bus rumbled with a group of merry pub-goers, ogled them as they passed. Harry and Ron were still wearing dress robes. 
Hermione, we haven't gotten anything to change into, Ron told her, as a young woman burst into a, a raucous giggles at the sight of him. Why didn't I make sure I had the invisibility cloak with me? Said Harry, inwardly cursing at his own stupidity. All last year, I kept it on me, and it's okay. I've got the cloak. I've got closer both of you, said Hermione. Just try and act natural. This will do. She led them down a side street, then to the, the shelter of a shadow alleyway. When you say you've got the cloak and clothes, said Harry, frowning at Hermione, who was carrying nothing except her small beaded handbag, which she was now rummaging. Yes, they're here, said Hermione, and to Harry and Ron's utter astonishment, she pulled out a pair of jeans, a sweatshirt, some maroon socks, and finally, the silvery invisibility cloak. How the ruddy hell undetectable extension charm, said Hermione. Tricky, but I think I've done it okay. Anyway, I managed to fit everything we need in here. She gave the fragile-looking bed a little shake, and it echoed like a cargo hold as a number of heavy objects rolled around inside. Oh, damn. That'll be the books, she said, peering into it. And I had them stacked by subject. Oh, well, Harry, you better take the invisibility cloak. Ron, hurry up and change. When did you do all this, Harry asked, and Ron shipped off his robes. I told you at the burrow. I have the essentials packed for days, you know, in case we need to make a quick getaway. I packed your rucksack this morning, Harry, after you changed and put it in here. I just had a feeling. You're amazing, you are, said Ron, handling, handing her his bundled-up robes. Thank you, said Hermione, managing a small smile as she pushed the robes into the bag. Please, Harry, get that cloak on. Harry threw the invisibility cloak around his shoulders and pulled it up over his head, vanishing from sight. He was only just beginning to appreciate what had happened. The others. Everyone at the wedding. We can't worry about that now, whispered Hermione. It's you they're after, Harry, and we'll just put everyone even more danger by going back. She's right, said Ron, who seemed to know what Harry was about to argue, even if he couldn't see his face. Most of the order was there. Well, they'll look after everyone. Harry nodded, then remembered that they could not see him, and said, Yeah, but he thought of Ginny, and fear bubbled like acid in his stomach. Come on, I think we ought to keep moving, said Hermione. They moved back up the side street and onto the main road again, where a group of men on the opposite side were singing and weaving across the pavement. Just as a matter of interest, why Tottenham Court Road? Ron asked Hermione. I have no idea, it just popped in my head, but I'm sure we're safer out in the mogul world. It's not where they'll expect us to be. True, said Ron, looking around, but don't you feel a bit exposed? Where else is there? asked Hermione, cringing as the men on the other side of the road started wolf whistling at her. Can hardly put grooms at the Leaky Cauldron, can we? And Grohl places out if Snape can get in there. I suppose we could try at my parents' house, though I think there's a chance they might check there. I, I just wish they'd shut up. All right, darling, said the drunkest of the men on the other, other side of the pavement who was yelling. Fancy a drink? Ditch ginger and come have a pint. Let's sit down somewhere, said Hermione hastily as Ron opened his mouth to shout back across the road. Look, this will do. In here. It was a small and shabby all-night cafe. A light layer of grease lay on the formica-top tables, but at least it was empty. And Harry slipped into the booth first, and Ron sat next to him opposite Hermione, who had her back to the entrance and did not like it. She glanced over her shoulder so frequently, she appeared to have a twitch. Harry did not like being stationary. Walking had given the illusion that they had a goal. Beneath the cloak, he could feel the last vestiges of the polyjuice potion leaving him, his hands returning to their usual length and shape. He pulled his glasses out of his pocket and put them on again. After a minute or two, Ron said, You know, we're not far from the leaky cauldron here. It's only a charing cross. Ron, we can't, said Hermione at once. Not to stay there, but to find out what's going on. We know what's going on. Voldemort's taken over the ministry. What else do we need to know? Okay, okay, it was just an idea. And they relapsed into prickly silence. The gum-chewing waitress shuffled over, and Hermione ordered two cappuccinos. As Harry was invisible, it would have looked very odd to order him one. A pair of burly workmen entered the cafe and squeezed into the next booth, and Hermione dropped her voice to a whisper. I said we find a quiet place to disapparate and head for the countryside. 
Once we're there, we can send a message to the Order. Can you do the, the talking Patronus thing then? Asked Ron. I've been practicing and I think so, said Hermione. Well, as long as it doesn't get them into trouble, though they might have been arrested already. Ugh, God, that's revolting, Ron added after one sip of the foamy grayish coffee. The waitress had heard. She shot Ron a nasty look as she shuffled off to take the new customer's orders. The large of the two workmen, who was blonde and quite huge now that Harry came to look at him, waved her away. She stared affronted. Let's get going, then. I, I don't want to drink this muck, said Ron. Hermione, have you got any muggle money to pay for this? Yes, I took out all my building society savings before I came to the borough. I'll bet all the change is at the bottom, sighed Hermione as she reached for her beaded bag. The two workmen made identical movements, and Harry mirrored them without conscious thought. All three of them drew their wands. Ron, a few seconds late in realizing what was going on, lunged across the table, pushing Hermione sideways onto the bench. The force of the Death Eater's spell shattered the tiled wall where Ron's head had just been. As Harry, still invisible, yelled, Stupefy! And the great blonde Death Eater was hit in the face by a jet of red light. He slumped sideways unconscious. His companion, unable to see who had cast the spell, fired another at Ron. Shining black ropes flew around his wand tip and bound Ron head to foot. The waitress screamed and ran for the door. Harry sent another stunning spell to Death Eater with a twisted face who had tied up Ron, but the spell missed. Rebounded on the window and hit the waitress who collapsed in front of the door. Expulso! bellowed the Death Eater, and the table which Harry was standing blew up. The fourth sea explosion slammed him into the wall, and he felt his wand leave his hand as the cloak slipped off him. Petrificus Totalis! screamed Hermione from out of sight, and the Death Eater fell forward like a statue to land with a crunching thud on the mess of the broken china, table, and coffee. Hermione crawled out from underneath the bench, shaking bits of glass ashtray out of her hair and trembling all over. D-D-Defindo! she said, pointing her wand at Ron, who roared in pain as she slashed open the knee of his jeans, leaving a deep cut. Oh, I'm so sorry, Ron. My hand's shaking. Defendo! The severed ropes fell away. Ron got to his feet, shaking his arms to regain feeling in them. Harry picked up his wand, climbed over all the debris where the large blonde Death Eater was sprawled across the bench. I should have recognized him. He was there the night Dumbledore died, he said. He turned over the darker Death Eater with his foot. The man's eyes moved rapidly between Harry, Ron, and Hermione. That's Dolohov, said Ron. I recognize him from the old Wanted posters. I think the big one's Thorfinn Rowell. Never mind what they're called, said Hermione a little hysterically. How would they find us, and what are we going to do? Somehow, her panic seemed to clear Harry's head. Lock the door, he told her, and Ron, turn out the lights. He looked down at the paralyzed Dolohov, thinking fast as the lock clicked, and Ron used a deluminator to plunge the cafe into total darkness. Harry could see the men who jeered at Hermione earlier yelling at another girl in the distance. What are we going to do with them? Ron whispered to Harry through the dark, then even more quietly, kill them? They'd kill us. They had a good go just now. Hermione shuddered and took a step backwards. Harry shook his head. We just need to wipe their memories, said Harry. It's better like that. It'll throw them off the scent. If we killed them, it'd be obvious we were here. You're the boss, said Ron, sounding profoundly relieved, but I've never done a memory charm. Nor have I, said Hermione, but I know the theory. She took a deep, calming breath, then pointed her wand at Dolohov's forehead and said, Obliviate. At once, Dolohov's eyes became unfocused and dreamy. Brilliant, said Harry, clapping her on the back. Take care of the other one and the waitress while Ron and I clear up. Clear up, said Ron, looking around the probably destroyed cafe. Why? Don't you think they might wonder what's happened if they wake up and find themselves in a place that looks like, like it's just been bombed? Oh, right, yeah. Ron struggled for a moment before managing to extract his wand from his pocket. It's no wonder I can't get it out, Hermione. You packed my old jeans. They're tight. Oh, I'm sorry, hissed Hermione as she dragged the waitress out of sight of the windows. Harry heard her mutter a suggestion as to where Ron could stick his wand instead. 
Once the cafe was restored to its previous condition, they'd heed the Death Eaters back into the booth and propped up them facing each other. How did they find us, Hermione asked, looking from one inert man to the other. How'd they know that we were here? She turned to Harry. You, you don't think you still got the trace on you, do you? You can't have, said Ron. The trace breaks at 17, and that's wizarding law. You cannot put it on an adult. As far as you know, said Hermione, what if the Death Eaters have found a way to put it on a 17-year-old? But Harry hasn't been near a Death Eater in the last 24 hours. Who's supposed to have put a trace back on him? Hermione did not reply. Harry felt contaminated, tainted. Was that really how the Death Eaters had found them? If I can't use magic, and you can't use magic near me without us giving away our position, he began. We're not splitting up, said Hermione firmly. We need a safe place to hide, said Ron. Give us some time to think things through. Grimwald Place, said Harry. The other two gaped. Don't be silly, Harry. Snape can get in there. Ron's dad said they've put up jinxes against him, and even if they haven't worked, he pressed on as Hermione began to argue, so what? I swear, I'd like nothing better than to meet Snape. But, Hermione, where else is there? It's the best chance we've got. Snape's only one Death Eater. If I've still got the trace on me, we'll have crowds of them on us wherever we go. She could not argue, though she looked as though she would like to. While she unlocked the cafe door, Ron clicked the illuminator to release the cafe's light. Then on Harry's count of three, they reversed the spells upon their three victims, and before the waitress or either of the Death Eaters could do more than stir sleepily, Harry, Ron, and Hermione had turned on the spot and vanished into the compressing darkness once more. Seconds later, Harry's lungs expanded gratefully, and he opened up his eyes. They were now standing in the middle of a familiar small and shabby square. Tall, dilapidated houses looked down on them from every side. Number 12 was visible to them, for they had been told of its existence by Dumbledore, its secret keeper, and they now rushed towards it, checking every few yards that they were not being followed or observed. They raced up the stone steps, and Harry tapped the front door once with his wand. They hear a series of metallic clicks and a clatter of a chain, then the door swung open with a creak, and they hurried over the threshold. As Harry closed the door behind them, the old-fashioned gas lamp sprang into light, casting flickering light along the length of the webbed hallway. It looked as Harry remembered it, eerie, cobwebbed the outlines of the house-elf heads on the wall throwing odd shadows up the staircase. Long, dark curtains concealed the portrait of Sirius's mother. The only thing that was out of place was the troll's umbrella leg, stand, leg umbrella stand, which was lying on its side as if Tonks had just knocked it over again. I think somebody's been in here, Hermione whispered, pointing towards it. That could have happened as the order left, remembered Ron. So, where are these jinxes they put up against Snape? Harry asked. Maybe they're only activated if he shows up, suggested Ron. Yet they remained close together on the doormat, backs against the door, scared to move further into the house. Well, we can't stay here forever, said Harry as he took a step forward. Severus Snape? Mad-Eye Moody's voice whispered out of the darkness, making all three of them jump back in fright. We're not Snape, croaked Harry, before something whooshed over him like cold air and his tongue curled backwards on itself, making it impossible to speak. Before he had time to feel inside his mouth, however, his tongue had unraveled again. The other two seemed to have experienced the same unpleasant sensation. Ron was making retching noises, and Hermione stammered. That must have been the tongue-tying curse mad I set up for Snape. Gingerly, Harry took another step forward. Something shifted in the shadows at the end of the hall, and before any of them could say another word, a figure had risen up out of the carpet, tall, dust-colored, and terrible. Hermione screamed, and so did Mrs. Black, her curtains flying open. The gray figure was gliding towards them, faster and faster, its waist-length hair and beard streaming behind it, its face sunken fleshless, with empty eye sockets, horribly familiar, dreadfully altered. It raised a wasted arm, pointing at Harry. No! Harry shouted as though 
And though he raised his wand, no spell occurred to him. No, it wasn't us. We didn't kill you. On the word kill, the figure exploded in a great cloud of dust. Coughing, his eyes watering, Harry looked around to see Hermione crouched on the floor by the door with her arms over her head and Ron, who was shaking from head to foot, patting her clumsily on the shoulder, saying, It's all right. It's gone. Dust swirled around Harry like mist, catching the blue gaslight, and Mrs. Black continued to spring. Mudbloods, filth, stains of dishonor, taint of shame on the house of my fathers. Shut up, bellowed Harry, directing his wand at her, and with a bang and a burst of red sparks, the curtain swung shut again, silencing her. That, that was, Hermione whimpered as Ron helped her to her feet. Yeah, but it really wasn't him, was it? Just something to scare Snape. Had it worked? Harry wondered. Or had Snape already blasted the horror figure aside as casually as he had killed the real Dumbledore? Nerves still tingling, he led the others up the hall, half expecting some new terror to reveal itself, but nothing moved except for a mouse skirting across the board. Before we go any further, I think we better check, whispered Hermione as she waves her wand. Homenum revelio, nothing happened. Well, you just had a big shock, said Ron kindly. What was that supposed to do? It did what I meant it to do, said Hermione rather crossly. That was a spell to reveal human presence, and there's nobody here except us. And old Dusty, said Ron, glancing at the patch of carpet from which the corpse figure had risen. Let's go up, said Hermione, with a frightened look at the same spot she led up the way from the creaking stairs to the drawing room on the first floor. Hermione waved her wand to ignite the old gas lamps, and shivering slightly from the drafty room, she perched on the sofa. Her arms wrapped tightly around her, Ron crossed to the window and moved the heavy velvet curtain aside an inch. Can't see anyone out there, he reported, and you'd think, if Harry stole the trace on him, they'd have followed us here. I know they can't get into the house, but... What's up, Harry? Harry gave a cry of pain. His scar had burned again as something flashed across his mind like a bright light on water. He saw a large shadow and felt a fury that was not his own pound through his body, violent and brief as an electric shock. What did you see? Ron asked, advancing on Harry. Did you see him? At my place? No, I just felt angry. He's really angry. But that could be at the burrow, said Ron loudly. What else? Didn't you see anything? Was he cursing someone? No, I just felt angry. I couldn't tell. Harry felt badgered, confused. And Hermione did not help as she said in a frightened voice, Your scar again? But what's going on? I thought that connection had closed. It did for a while, muttered Harry. His scar is still painful, and which made it hard for him to concentrate. I think it's starting to open again whenever he loses control. That's how it used to. But then you've got to close your mind, said Hermione shrilly. Harry, Dumbledore didn't want you to use that connection. He wanted you to shut it down. That's why you're supposed to, to learn occlumency. Otherwise, Voldemort can plant false images in your head, remember? Yeah, I do remember. Thanks, said Harry through gritted teeth. He did not need Hermione to tell him that Voldemort had once used the self-same connection between them to lead him into a trap, nor that it had resulted in Sirius's death. He wished now that he had not told them what he had seen and felt. It made Voldemort, Voldemort more threatening, as though he was pressing against the window of the room. And still, the pain in the scar was building, and he fought it. It was like resisting the urge to be sick. He turned his back on Ron and Hermione, pretending to examine the old tapestry of the black family tree on the wall. Then Hermione shrieked. Harry drew his wand again, then spun around to see a silver Patronus soar through the drawing room and land upon the floor in front of them, where it solidified into the weasel that spoke with the voice of Ron's father. Family safe? Do not reply. We are being watched. The Patronus dissolved into nothingness. Ron let out a noise between a whimper and a groan and dropped onto the sofa. Hermione joined him, gripping his arm. They're all right. They're all right, she whispered. Ron half laughed, half hugged her. Harry, 
he said over Hermione's shoulder. I, it's not a problem, Harry said Harry, sickened by the pain in his head. It's your family. Of course you're worried. I feel the same. He thought of Ginny. I, I do feel the same. The pain in his scarf was reaching a peak, burning as it had done in the garden of the burrow. Faintly, he heard Hermione say, I don't want to be on my own. Could we use the sleeping bags I've brought and camp in here tonight? He heard Ron agree. He could not fight the pain much longer. He had to succumb. Bathroom, he muttered. He left the room as fast as he could without running. He barely made it. Bolting the door behind him with trembling hands, he grasped the pounding head, his pounding head and fell to the floor. Then in an explosion of agony, he felt the rage that did not belong to him, possess his soul, saw a long room lit by only a firelight and the great blonde Death Eater on the floor screaming and writhing and a slither, slighter figure standing over him, wand outstretched while Harry spoke in a cold, high, merciless voice. More, Raoul. Or shall we end it and feed you to Nagini? Lord Voldemort is not sure that he will forgive this time. You called me back for this? To tell me that Harry Potter has escaped again? Draco, give Roll another taste of our displeasure. Do it, or feel my wrath yourself. A log fell in the fire, flames reared, their light darting across a terrified pointed white face with a sense of emerging from deep water, Harry drew heaving breaths and opened his eyes. He was spread-eagled on the cold black marble floor, his nose inches from one of the silver serpent tails that supported the large bathtub. He sat up. Malfoy's gaunt, petrified face seemed branded on the inside of his eyes. He felt sickened by what he had seen, by the use of which Draco was now being put by Voldemort. There was a sharp rap on the door, and Harry jumped as Hermione's voice rang out. Harry, do you want your toothbrush? I've got it here. Yeah, great, thanks, he said, fighting to keep his voice casual as he stood up to let her in. And that's chapter nine. Some big things, a lot of action. Chase, take it away with your your takeaways from that chapter, and then I'll do the same and we'll <laughs> jump into the next one. Yeah, a lot of big takeaways here. I mean, um, one props for Hermione for bringing everyone's shit in the bag <laughs> first of all because everyone left their shit apparently like where they wherever the hell they were like no one thinks ahead apparently uh, unless it's Hermione um so she steps up in a big way even brings the invisibility cloak that's gonna definitely need need to be used later on um you know they're being followed <laughs> that's the, one of the huge things here it's like it's action-packed from the start like in the coffee house or wherever the fuck they were that apparently they decided to put in harry potter and the half-blood prince instead i'm <laughs> just kidding <laughs> no it's in there but yeah um so yeah they uh, they're really on the run here and then one big thing that really stood out when they finally get over to like grimwald's place is that like, whatever the hell that, like, spirit thing was that was, like, coming down the hallway scared the shit out of me, man. They need to have this in the Haunted Mansion at Disney. <laughs> like, I told you, I've been saying this in Sorcerer's Stone. If they did uh, Horror Nights Harry Potter, that would have been perfect, like, to put in there. You could do that with projections. That was awesome. Um, and I think the most important thing from this chapter is, of course... You know, Harry's scar starts to burn again, and and he sees that vision of now Ollivander is being tortured by Voldemort, and uh, man, like you can tell Voldemort is going after something that Ollivander or Grigorovich, like these wand makers, know something 
and Voldemort is trying to go after it, which is a huge piece because um, he's trying to get a leg up on this thing and win this war. Well, that, so uh, that, with that, what about you, man? Yeah, are, so that you actually got the wrong part. The vision that we just saw with the scar hurting, he wasn't torturing Alavander. He was torturing Raoul, which was a Death Eater that let Harry Potter escape. Raoul, so, okay, yeah. yeah so he, was, he wasn't actually, yeah. it had nothing to do with the wands at the time. He was actually forcing Draco to perform the Cruciatus Curse on the other Death Eater. That's why he said, do it now, Draco, or feel the wrath myself. And so Draco's sitting there using the Cruciatus Curse on the other Death Eater. So that's what he was doing. That was that was the, that vision. It had nothing to do with the, any of the wand shit. It's because that Harry escaped again. That's why he said, you allowed Harry Potter to escape again? I don't know if I'm going to forgive this time. Like, you know, so that's that's what that vision was. The yeah, yeah. One was Sorry, I must have week. mixed that but, up. That's later on, that uh, vision I was that, thinking of. A little foreshadowing yeah, there for you guys. A little yeah, foreshadowing so, <laughs> for later on. I got a little about... ahead of myself there. But yeah, no, <laughs> it's, it's uh, definitely, you can tell Voldemort is definitely... Um, it's not happy. He's trying to get information, <laughs> I guess, well, I would say. Not, but yeah, not uh, what about you, man? Here. Yeah, so not, not even trying to get information. He's just pissed. He's like, you're feeling his wrath. He's using the Cruciatus Curse on his Death Eater for letting Harry Potter escape again. So that's all it is. Like He's just teaching his... like followers a lesson like don't fail me motherfuckers you failed me every single time when it comes to harry potter i don't know if i'm gonna forgive you this time so draco hit this bitch with a cruciatus curse or i'm gonna hit you with a cruciatus curse and draco's like like pale white face that's why harry's like draco's pale white face was imprinted on the back side of his eyes like it's the last thing he saw before he let hermione into the bathroom but yeah so that was a lot of stuff but there's a lot of things that happened in that like the battle between the death eaters how did the death eaters find them in tottingham court road you know, was it? Does Harry still have the trace on him? You know, how were they able to get there? Uh, on top of that, like, yeah, to your point, Hermione was very, very smart in bringing that bag with her that had all of their things. Uh, they're going. They went back to Grimold Place, the place that they were not. They didn't want to go because they were afraid that Snape, since he knew about it, would be able to get in there and tell the Death Eaters about it. And we see the traps that were set up for Moody, like you had, like by Mad Eye Moody for Snape that you had mentioned. And I think. One of the biggest takeaways, too, is at the wedding, everyone's safe because Mr. Weasley actually sent that weasel Patronus saying, hey, like the family's safe. Don't try to contact us. We're being watched. So now we're kind of going into the next thing because it's almost like now for the first time, Harry, Ron, and Hermione are really on their own. Like They can't contact anyone in the order. No one's coming to help them out. It's just Harry, Ron, and Hermione are finally on their own in Grimwald Place. Uh, kind of, you know, we're going to have some cool things that appear in this, this coming chapter too. So that was a fun chapter. There was a lot of action in it. There was a lot of, you know, planning. We got to see some full circle moments, some foreshadows for the future. A lot of good stuff in that. We got to see Draco for the first time. Well, not first time. We saw him when he was sitting watching Charity Burbage get murdered in the very beginning last week in the first chapter. But like, he's like, he's <laughs> yeah. not at Hogwarts right now either. You know, like not, I'm going back to Hogwarts at this point in time, I should say. But yeah, it's uh, there was a lot of stuff that going on there. Now I will kind of bring us into chapter ten, and I just have a couple bullet points before I turn it over to you to read the rest of the chapter. You want know if I go through my bullet points and then turn it on over to you? Yeah, go for it, man. Awesome. So on page one seventy six on chapter ten, creatures tale. Ron and Hermione, like they like so. Harry wakes up and he looks down. And he says that he thinks that Ron and Hermione might have fallen asleep holding hands, and it kind of made Harry himself feel lonely. You know, because like they were they're in it together, and he kind of feels like empty. Uh, page one seventy seven. Harry's starting to become a little unsure about his feelings towards Dumbledore 
now that he's had time to settle down because he heard all that stuff from uh auntie muriel talking about his experiences like as a kid with the sister the mom the dad attacking the muggles like so he's starting to kind of feel a little bit unsure about how he feels about dumbledore at this point in time and that's actually going to play a big role later on because he's got to you know there comes to a breaking point eventually where he's got to take like do he does do i actually trust dumbledore overall or like do all these planted seeds of doubt take over my opinion of him so big stuff there page 178 harry goes up to see the room that him and ron stayed in back in the order of the phoenix and looks to the portrait of Phineas Nagilius Black, which was empty. And that portrait is actually going to play a big role later on. Uh, that stuff we're going to find out. Actually, not this episode, but next week. Uh, you're going to see something to do with, uh, with that portrait. And then also why it's going to be really important. Uh, now, going on from there on also on one page 178. This is just something I thought was funny. Harry goes into Sirius's room looks around it and admires the fact that Sirius attempted to intentionally annoy his parents, not only with the Gryffindor paraphernalia and motorcycle posters, but also pictures of women in bikinis that were muggles. And he could tell that they were muggles because the pictures weren't moving. So it's just funny that, you know, Sirius kind of stuck it to his parents by being like the black sheep of the black family, no pun intended. Um, but uh, on top of that, on page 179, Harry sees the photo of Sirius, James, Lupin, and Peter Pettigrew from their Hogwarts days. And you guys can actually see that picture. Uh, that's the chapter illustration on chapter 10 on page 176. If you go back a little bit, that chapter illustration is actually the picture that you guys will see that Harry's looking at. And on page 180, what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to go ahead and read Lily's note to Sirius through the first paragraph on page 183 before I turn it over to Chase. And he'll kind of take it away from there. But I'll go ahead and start. It says, this is from Lily to Sirius. Dear Padfoot, thank you. Thank you for Harry's birthday present. It was his favorite by far. One year old and already zooming along on a toy broomstick. He looks so pleased with himself. I'm enclosing a picture so you can see. He only, only rises about two feet off the ground, but he nearly killed the cat and smashed a horrible vase Petunia sent me for Christmas. No complaints there. Of course, James thought it was so funny he says he's going to be the great Quidditch player. Well, we had to pack away all the ornaments and make sure we don't take our eyes off him when he gets going. We had a very quiet birthday tea, just us and old Bathilda, who has always been sweet to us and who dotes on Harry. We're so sorry you couldn't come, but the order's got to come first, and Harry's not old enough to know his birthday anyways. James is getting a bit frustrated. Shut up here. He tries not to show it, but I can tell. Also, Dumbledore still got his invisibility cloak, so no chance of little excursions. If you could visit, it would cheer him up much. Wormy was here last weekend. I thought he seemed down, but that was probably the news about the McKinnons. I cried all evening when I heard. Bathilda drops in most days. She's a fascinating old thing, with the most amazing stories about Dumbledore. I'm not sure he'd be pleased if he knew. I don't know how much to believe, actually, because it seems incredible that Dumbledore and Harry's extremities seemed to have gone numb. He, could, he stood quite still, holding them in miraculous paper in his nerveless fingers, while inside of him a kind of quiet eruption sent joy and grief thundering in equal measure through his veins. Lurching to the bed, he sat down. He read the letter again, but he could not take in any more meaning than he had done the first time, 
and he was reduced to staring at the handwriting itself. She made her G's the same way he did. He searched through the letter for every one of them and felt like a friendly little wave glimpsed from behind a veal. The letter was an incredible treasure, proof that Lily Potter had lived, really lived, that her warm hand had once moved across this parchment, tracing ink into these letters, these words, words about him, Harry, her son. Impatiently brushing away the wetness in his eyes, he reread the letter, this time concentrating on the meaning. It was like listening to a half-remembered voice. They had a cat. Perhaps it had perished, like his parents at Godric's Hollow, or else fled when nobody was left to feed it. Sirius had bought him his first broomstick. His parents had known Bethilda Bagshot. Had Dumbledore introduced them? Dumbledore still got his invisibility cloak. There was something funny there. Harry paused, pondering his mother's words. Why had Dumbledore taken James's invisibility cloak? Harry distinctly remembered his headmaster telling him years before, I don't need a cloak to become invisible. Perhaps some less gifted order member had needed its assistance, and Dumbledore had acted as its carrier. Harry passed on. Wormy was here. Pettigrew, the traitor, had seemed down, had he? Was he aware that he was seeing James and Lily alive for the last time? And finally, Bethilda again, who told incredible stories about Dumbledore. It seems incredible that Dumbledore... That Dumbledore what? But there was any number of things that would seem incredible about Dumbledore. That he had once received bottom marks in a transfiguration test, for instance, or he had taken up a goat charming like Aberforth. Harry got to his feet and scanned the floor. Perhaps the rest of the letter was here somewhere. He sees papers, treating them in his eagerness with as little consideration as the original searcher. He pulled open drawers, shook out books, stood on a chair to run his hand over the top of the wardrobe, crawled under the bed and armchair. At last, lying face down on the floor, he spotted what looked like a torn piece of paper under the chest of drawers. When he pulled it out, it proved to be most of the photograph Lily had described in her letter. A black-haired baby was zooming in and out of the picture on a tiny broom, roaring with laughter, and a pair of legs that must have belonged to James were chasing after him. Harry tucked the photograph into his pocket with Lily's letter and continued to look for the second sheet. After a quarter of an hour, however, he was forced to conclude that the rest of his mother's letter was gone. He had, si had it simply been lost in the 16 years that had elapsed since it had been written, or had it been taken by whoever who had searched the rooms prior? Harry read the first sheet again, this time looking for clues as to what might have, what might have made the second sheet valuable. His toy broomstick could hardly be considered interesting to Death Eaters. The only potentially useful thing he could see here was possible information on Dumbledore. It seemed incredible that Dumbledore, that Dumbledore what? And that's where I'll stop and let kind of Chase take it from there through the end of the chapter. But one thing I wanted to mention through here, not only is it cool about, you know, reading Lily's handwriting and kind of getting like a blast from the past. I thought this is an excellent full circle moment as well. We learned that Sirius gave Harry a toy broomstick. That was his first era of broomstick. Well, when Sirius escaped Azkaban, what was one of the first things he did? Bought Harry a firebolt. So it's like it's like a kind of full circle thing. Sirius was the first Ironic. one to give him a toy broomstick. Then when his Nimbus 2000 smashed, Sirius's first like like thing to do for Harry 
after breaking out of the wizard prison for 13 years, was to buy him the most expensive actual broomstick. So I just thought that was really, really cool. Anyways, with that being said, I'll turn it over to Chase, and he'll kind of take it from here to the end of the chapter. Yeah, man. Uh, let's see. Ironically, too, um, <clears throat> so my interesting fact's a little bit different because I had this like interesting fact built up for the longest time about what we're about to talk about. Little did I remember, it's all right here in the chapter. <laughs> <laughs> so you're about to hear all that. But this is really cool. So uh, everything's starting to kind of come together. Um, but yeah, I'll take it from page 183 at the top. Harry, Harry, Harry. I'm here, he called. What's happened? There's a clouder of footsteps outside the door, and Hermione burst inside. We woke up and didn't know where you were, she said breathlessly. She turned and shouted over her shoulder. Run! I found him! Ron's annoyed voice echoed distantly from several floors below. Good. Tell him where he's... Where, tell him from me he's a git. Harry, don't just disappear, please. We were terrified. Why did you come up here anyways? She gazed around the ransacked room. What have you been doing? Look what I've just found. He held out his mother's letter. Hermione took it and read it while Harry watched her. When she reached the end of the page, she looked up at him. Oh, Harry. And there's this, too. He handed her the torn photograph, and Hermione smiled at the baby zooming in and out of sight on the toy broom. I've been looking for the rest of the letter, Harry said, but it's not here. Hermione glanced around. Did you make all this mess, or was it some of it done when you got here? Someone had searched before me, said Harry. I thought so. Every room I looked into on the way up had been disturbed. What what were they after, do you think? Information on the order, if it was Snape? But you'd think he'd already have all he needed. I mean, he was in the order, wasn't he? Well then, said Harry, keen to discuss his theory. What about information on Dumbledore? The second page of his letter, for instance. You know this Bethilda my mom mentions? You know who she is? Who? Bethilda Bagshot, the author of A History of Magic, said Hermione, looking interested. So your parents knew her? She was an incredible magical historian. And she's still alive, said Harry, and she lives in Godric's Hollow. Ron's Aunt Muriel was talking about her at the wedding. She knew Dumbledore's family, too. Be pretty interesting to talk to, talk to, wouldn't she? There was a little too much understanding in the smile Hermione gave him for Harry's liking. He took back the letter and the photograph and tucked them inside the pouch around his neck so as not to have look at her and give himself away. I understand why you'd love to talk to her about your mom and dad, and Dumbledore too, said Hermione. But that wouldn't really help us in our search for Horcruxes, would it? Harry did not answer, and she rushed on. Harry, I know you really want to go to Godric's Hollow, but I'm scared. I'm scared at how easily those Death Eaters found us yesterday. It makes me feel more than ever that we ought to avoid the place where your parents are buried. I'm sure they'd be expecting you to visit. It's not that, Harry said, still avoiding looking at her. Muriel said stuff about Dumbledore at the wedding. I want to know the truth. He told Hermione everything that Muriel had told him. When he had finished, Hermione said, Of course I can see why that's upset you, Harry. I'm not upset, he lied. I'd just like to know whether or not it's true or... Harry... Do you really think you'll get the truth from a malicious old woman like Muriel or from Rita Skeeter? How can you believe them? You knew Dumbledore. I thought I did, he muttered. 
but you know how much truth they were, there was in everything Rita wrote about you. Doge is right. How can you let these people tarnish your memories of Dumbledore? He looked away, trying not to betray the re resentment he felt. There it was again. Choose what to believe. He wanted the truth. Why was everybody so determined that he should not get it? Shall we go down to the kitchen? Hermione suggested after a little pause. Find something for breakfast? He agreed, but grudgingly, and followed her out into the landing on the past second door that led off it. There were deep scratch marks in the paintwork below a small sign that he had not noticed in the dark. He paused at the top of the stairs to read it, and it was a pompous little sign, neatly lettered by hand, the sort of thing that Percy Weasley might have stuck on his bedroom door. Do not enter without the express permission of Regulus Arcturus Black. Excitement trickled through Harry, but he was not immediately sure why. He read the sign again. Hermione was already a flight of stairs below him. Hermione, he said. He was surprised that his voice was so calm. Come, up, come back up here. What's the matter? R.A.B. I think I found him. There was a gasp. And then Hermione ran back up the stairs. In your mom's letter? But I didn't see. Harry shook his head, pointing at Regulus's sign. She read it and then clutched Harry's arm so tightly that he winced. Sirius's brother, she whispered. He was a Death Eater, said Harry. Sirius told me about him. He joined up when he was really young, and then he got cold feet and tried to leave, so they killed him. That fits, gasped Hermione. If he was a Death Eater, he had access to Voldemort, and if he became disenchanted, then he would have wanted to bring Voldemort down. She released Harry, leaned over the banister, and screamed, Run! Run! Get back up here, quick! Ron appeared panting a minute later, his wand ready in hand. What's up? If it's massive spiders again, I want breakfast before I... He frowned at the sign of Regulus's door, to which Hermione was si silently pointing. What? That was Sirius's brother, wasn't it? Regulus Arcturus Regulus R.A.B.? The locket, you don't reckon? Let's find out, said Harry. He pushed the door. It was locked. Hermione pointed her wand at the handle and said, Alohomora. There was a click and the door swung open. They moved over to the threshold together, gazing around Regulus's bedroom was slightly smaller than Sirius's, though it had the same sense of former grandeur. Whereas Sirius had sought to advertise his difference from the rest of the family, Regulus had striven to emphasize the opposite. The slithering colors of emerald and silver were everywhere, draping the bed, the walls, and the windows. The black family crest was painstakingly painted over the bed, along with its motto, To George Poor. Beneath this was a collection of yellow newspaper cuttings, all stuck together to make a ragged collage. Hermione crossed the room to examine them. They're all about Voldemort, she said. Regulus seems to have been a fan for years, before he joined the Death Eaters. A little puff of dust from the bed covers as she sat down to read the clippings. Harry, meanwhile, had noticed another photograph. A Hogwarts Quidditch team was smiling and waving out of the frame. He moved closer and saw the snakes emblazoned on their chests, Slytherins. Regulus was instantly recognizable as the boy sitting in the middle of the front row. He had the same dark hair and slightly haughty look of his brother, though he was smaller, slighter, and rather less handsome than Sirius had been. He played Seeker, said Harry. What? said Hermione vaguely. She was still immersed in Voldemort's press clippings. He's sitting in the middle of the front row. That's where the Seeker... Never mind said Harry, realizing that the body was listening. 
that nobody was listening. Ron was on his hands and knees searching under his wardrobe. Harry looked around the room for likely hiding places and approached the desk. Yet again, somebody had searched before them. The drawer's contents had been turned over recently. The dust disturbed, but there was nothing of value there. Old quills, out-of-date textbooks that bore evidence of being roughly handled, a recently smashed ink bottle, its sticky residue covering the contents of the drawer. There's an easier way, said Hermione. As Harry wiped his inky fingers on its jeans, she raised her wand and said, Accio, lock it! Nothing happened. Ron, who had been searching the folds of the faded curtains, looked disappointed. Is that it then? It's not here? Oh, it could still be here, but under counter enchantments, said Hermione. Charms to prevent it being summoned magically, you know. Like Voldemort put on the stone basin in a cave, said Harry, remembering how he had been unable to summon the fake locket. How are we supposed to find it then, said Ron, asked Ron. We search manually, said Hermione. That's a good idea, said Ron. Rolling his eyes, he resumed his examination of the curtains. They combed every inch of the room for more than an hour, but were forced finally to conclude that the locket was not there. The sun had risen now. Its light dazzled them even through the grimy landing windows. It could be somewhere else in the house, though, said Hermione, in a rallying tone as they walked back down the stairs. As Harry and Ron had become more discouraged, she seemed to have been more determined. Whether he'd managed to destroy it or not, he'd want to keep it hidden from Voldemort, wouldn't he? Remember all those awful things he would have had to get rid of when we were here last time? That clock that shot bolts as everyone, those old robes that tried to strangle Ron? Regulus might have put them there to protect the locket's hiding place, even though we didn't realize it at... at... Harry and Ron looked at her. She was standing with one foot in midair with dumbstruck look of one who had just been obliviated. Her eyes had even drifted out of focus. At the time, she finished in a whisper. Something wrong? asked Ron. There was a locket. What? said Harry and Ron together. In the cabinet in the drawing, drawing room. Nobody could open it, and we, we... Harry felt as though a brick had slid through his chest into his stomach. He remembered. He had even handled the thing as they passed it around, each trying to turn a prize it open. It had been tossed into a sack of rubbish along with a snuffle box of wart cat powder and the music box that had made everyone sleepy. Creature nicked loads of things back from us, said Harry. It was the only chance, the only slender hope left to them. And he was going to cling to it until forced to let go. He had a whole stash of stuff in a clipboard in the kitchen. Come on. He ran down the stairs, taking two steps at a time, the other two thundering along in his wake. They made so much noise that they woke the portrait of Sirius's mother as they passed through the hall. Filth! Mudbloods! Scum! She screamed after them as they dashed down into the basement kitchen and slammed the door behind them. Harry ran the length of the room, skidded to a halt the door of Creature's cupboard, and wrenched it open. There was a nest of dirty old blankets in which the house elf had once slept, but they were no longer glittering with trinkets and Creature had salvaged. The only thing, there was an old copy of Nature's Nobility, a wizarding genealogy. Refusing to believe his eyes, Harry snatched up the blankets and shook them. A dead mouse fell out on the rolled dismally across the floor. Ron groaned as he threw himself into a kitchen chair. Hermione closed her eyes. It's not over yet, said Harry, and he raised his voice and called, Creature! 
There was a loud crack, and the house elf that Harry had so reluctantly inherited from Sirius appeared out of nowhere in front of the cold and empty fireplace. Tiny half-human size, his pale skin hanging off him in folds, white hair sprouting corpulently from his bat-like ears. He was still wearing the filthy rag in which they had first met him, and contemptuous look he bent upon Harry showed that his attitude to his change of ownership had altered no more than his outfit. Master, croaked Creature in his bullfrog's voice, and he bowed low, muttering to his knees, Back in my old mistress's house with the blood traitor Weasley and the mudblood. I forbid you to call anyone blood traitor or mudblood, growled Harry. Growled Harry. He would have found Creature with his snout-like nose and bloodshot eyes, a distinctly unlovable object, even if Elf had not betrayed Sirius to Voldemort. I've got a question for you, said Harry, his heart beating rather fast as he looked down at the elf, and I order you to answer it in the truthfully, understand? Yes, master, said Creature, bowing low again. Harry saw his lips moving soundlessly, undoubtedly framing the insults he now forbidden to utter. Two years ago, said Harry, his heart now hammering against his ribs, there was a big gold locket in the drawing room upstairs. We threw it out. Did you steal it back? There was a moment's silence during which Creature straightened up to look Harry full in the face, and then he said, Yes. Where is it now? asked Harry jubilantly, as Ron and Hermione looked gleeful. Creature closed his eyes as though he could not bear to see the reactions to the next word. Gone, echoed Harry. Gone, gone, echoed Harry, elation flooding out of him. What to do? What do you mean it's gone? The elf shivered. He swayed. Creature, said Harry fiercely. I order you, Mundungus Fletcher, croaked the elf, his eyes still tight shut. Mundungus Fletcher stole it all. Miss Bella's and Miss Sissy's pictures, my mistress's gloves, the order of Merlin first class, the goblets with the family crest, and then Creature was gulping for air. His hollow chest was rising and falling rapidly, then his eyes flew open, and he uttered a blood-curdling scream. And the locket! Master Regulus's locket! Creature did it wrong! Creature failed his orders. Harry reacted instinctively. As Creature lunged for the poker standing in the grate, he launched himself upon the elf, flattening him. Hermione's scream mingled with Creature's, but Harry bellowed louder than both of them. Creature, I order you to stay still. He felt the elf freeze and release him. Creature lay flat on the cold stone floor, tears gushing from his sagging eyes. Harry, let him up, Hermione whispered. So he can beat himself up with poker? Snorted Harry, kneeling beside the elf. I don't think so. Right, Creature, I want the truth. How do you know Madungus Fletcher stole the locket? Creature saw him, gasped the elf as tears poured over his snout and into his mouth full of graying teeth. Creature saw him coming out of Creature's cupboard with his hands full of Creature's treasures. Creature told the sneak thief to stop, but Madungus Fletcher laughed and ran. You called the locket Master Regulus's, said Harry. Why? Where did it come from? What did Regulus have to do with it? Creature, sit up and tell me everything you know about the locket and everything Regulus has to do with it. The elf sat up, curled into a ball, placed his wet face between his knees, and began to rock backward and forward. When he spoke, his voice was muffled, but quite distinct in the silent, echoing the kitchen. Master Sirius ran away. Good riddance, 
for he was a bad boy and broke my mistress's heart with his lawless ways. But Master Regulus had proper pride. He knew what was due to the name of Black and the dignity of his pure blood. For years he talked of the Dark Lord who was going to bring the wizards out of hiding to rule the Muggles and Muggleborns. And when he was 16 years old, Master Regulus joined the Dark Lord. So proud, so proud, so happy to serve. And one day, a year after he joined, Master Regulus came down to the kitchen to see Creature. Master Regulus always liked Creature. And Master Regulus said, he said, The old elf rocked faster than ever. He said that the Dark Lord required an elf. Voldemort needed an elf, Harry repeated, looking around at Ron and Hermione, who looked just as puzzled as he did. Oh, yes, moaned Creature, and Master Regulus had a volunteered Creature. It was an honor, said Master Regulus, an honor for him, for Creature, who must be sure to do whatever the Dark Lord ordered him to do, and then to, c to come home. Creature rocked still faster, his breath coming into so in sobs. So Creature went to the Dark Lord. The Dark Lord did not tell Creature what they were to do, but took Creature with him to a cave beside the sea, and beyond the cave there was a cavern, and in the cavern was a great black lake. The hairs on the back of Harry's neck stood up. Creature's croaking voice seemed to come to him from across the dark water. He saw what had happened as clearly as though he had been present. There was a boat. Of course there had been a boat. Harry knew there was a boat. Ghostly green and tiny bewitched so as to carry one wizard and one victim toward the island in the center. This, then, was how Voldemort had tested the defenses surrounding the Horcrux by borrowing a disposable creature, a house elf. There was a basin full of potion on the island. The Dark Lord made Creature drink it. The elf quaked from head to foot. Creature drank, and as he drank, he saw terrible things. Creature's insides burned. Creature cried for Master Regulus to save him. He cried for his mistress Black, but the Dark Lord only laughed. He made Creature drink all the potion. He dropped a locket into the basin. He filled it with more potion. And then the Dark Lord sailed away, leaving Creature on the island. Harry could see it happening. He watched Voldemort's white snake-like face vanishing into darkness, those red eyes fixed piteously on the thrashing elf whose death would occur within minutes. Whenever he succumbed to the desperate thirst when the burning potion caused its victim, but here Harry's imagination could go no further, for he could not see how Creature had escaped. Creature needed water. He crawled to the island's edge and he drank from the black lake. And hands, dead hands, came out of the water and dragged Creature under the surface. How did you get away? Harry asked. And he was not surprised to hear himself whispering. Creature raised his ugly head and looked at Harry with his great bloodshot eyes. Master Regulus told Creature to come back, he said. I know. But how did you escape the Inferi? Creature did not seem to understand. Master Regulus told Creature to come back, he repeated. I know, but 
Well, it's obvious, isn't it, Harry? said Ron. He disapparated. But you couldn't apparate in and out of the cave, said Harry. Otherwise, double or elf magic isn't like wizard's magic, is it? said Ron. I mean, they can apparate and disapparate in and out of Hogwarts when we can't. There was a silence as Harry digested this. How could Voldemort have made such a mistake? But even as he thought this, Hermione spoke and her voice was icy. Of course Voldemort would have considered the ways of the house elves far beneath his notice. Just like all purebloods who treat them like animals, it would never have occurred to him that they might have magic that he didn't. The house elf's highest law is master's bidding, intoned Creature. Creature was told to come home, so Creature came home. Well then, you did what you were told, didn't you? said Hermione kindly. You didn't disobey orders at all. Creature shook his head, rocking as fast as ever. So what happened when you got back? Here he asked. What did Regulus say when you told him what had happened? Master Regulus was very worried. Very worried, croaked Creature. Master Regulus told Creature to stay hidden and not to leave the house. And then, it was a little while later, Master Regulus came to find Creature in his cupboard one night. Master Regulus was strange. Not as he usually was, disturbed in his mind. Creature could tell, and he asked Creature to take him to the cave, the cave where Creature had gone with the Dark Lord. And so they had set off. Harry could visualize them quite clearly. The frightened old elf and the thin, dark seeker, who had so resembled Sirius, Creature knew how to open the concealed entrance to the underground cavern, knew how to raise the tiny boat this time, it was his beloved Regulus who sailed him to the island with its basin of poison. And he made you drink the potion, said Harry, disgusted. But Creature shook his head and wept. Hermione's hands leapt to her mouth, and she seemed to have understood something. My master Regulus took from his pocket a locket like the one the Dark Lord had, said Creature, tears pouring down either side of his snout-like nose. And he told Creature to take it and when the basin was empty, to switch the lockets. Creature's sobs came in great rasp now. Harry had to concentrate hard to understand him. And he ordered Creature to leave without him. And he told Creature to go home and to never tell my mistress what he had done, but to destroy the first locket. And he drank all the potion. And Creature swapped the lockets and watched as Master Regulus was dragged beneath the water. And, oh, Creature, wailed Hermione, who was crying. She dropped to her knees beside the elf and tried to hug him. At once, he was on his feet, cringing away from her, quite obviously repulsed. The mudblood touched Creature. He will not allow it. What would his mistress say? I told you not to call her mudblood, snarled Harry. But the elf was already punishing himself. He fell to the floor and banged his forehead on the floor. Stop him! Stop him! Hermione cried. Oh, don't you see now how sick it is? The way they've got to obey? Creature, stop! Stop! Shouted Harry. The elf lay on the floor, panting and shivering, green mucus glistening around his snout, a bruise already blooming on his pallid forehead where he had struck himself, his eyes swollen and bloodshot and swimming in tears. Harry had never seen anything so pitiful. So you brought the locket home, he said relentlessly, for he was determined to know the full story. 
and you tried to destroy it? Nothing creature did made any mark upon it, moaned the elf. Creature tried everything, everything he knew. But nothing, nothing would work. So many powerful spells upon the casing. Creature was sure the way to destroy it was to get inside it, but it would not open. Creature punished himself. He tried again. He punished himself. He tried again. Creature failed to obey orders. Creature could not destroy the locket. And his mistress was mad with grief because Master Regulus had disappeared. And Creature could not tell her what had happened. Not because Master Regulus had f forbidden him to tell any of the f family what happened in the c cave. Creature began to sob so hard that there was no more coherent words. Tears flowed down Hermione's cheeks. And she watched Creature, but she did not dare touch him again. Even Ron, who is no fan of Creature's, looked troubled. Here he sat back on his heels and shook his head, trying to clear it. I don't understand you, creature, he said finally. Voldemort tried to kill you. Regulus died to bring Voldemort down. But you were still happy to betray Sirius to Voldemort. You were happy to go to Narcissa and Bellatrix and pass information to Voldemort through them. Harry, creature doesn't think like that, said Hermione, wiping her eyes on the back of her hand. He's a slave. How slaves are used to bad, even brutal treatment. What Voldemort did to Creature wasn't that far out of the common way. What do wizards' wars mean to an elf-like Creature? He's loyal to people who are kind to him, and Miss Black must have been. And Regulus certainly was. So he served them willingly and parroted their beliefs. I know what you're going to say. She went on as Harry began to protest. That Regulus changed his mind, but he doesn't seem to have explained that to Creature, does he? And I think I know why. Creature and Regulus's family were all safer if they kept to the old pure-blood line. Regulus was trying to protect them all. Sirius? Sirius was horrible to Creature, Harry. And it's no good looking like that. You know it's true. Creature had been alone for a long time when Sirius came to live here. And he was probably starving for a bit of affection, I'm sure. Miss Sissy and Miss Bella were perfectly lovely to Creature when he turned up. So he did them a favor and told them everything they wanted to know. I've said all along that wizards would pay for how they treat house elves. Well, Voldemort did. And so did Sirius. Harry had no retort. And he watched Creature sobbing on the floor. And he remembered what Dumbledore had said to him mere hours after Sirius's death. I do not think Sirius ever saw Creature as a being with feelings, as acute as a human's. Creature, said Harry after a while, when you feel up to it, er, please sit up. It was several minutes before Creature hiccuped himself into silence. Then he pushed himself into the sitting position, again rubbing his knuckles into his eyes like a small child. Creature, I am going to ask you to do something, said Harry. He glanced at Hermione for assistance. He wanted to give the order kindly, but at the same time, he could not pretend that it was not an order. However, the change in his tone seemed to have gained her approval. She smiled encouragingly. Creature, I want you to please go and find McDungus Fletcher. We need to find out where the locket, where, where Master Regulus's locket is. It's very important. We want to finish the work Master Regulus started. We want to ensure that he didn't die in vain creature dropped his fist and looked up at harry 
Find Madungus Fletcher, he croaked. And bring him here to Grimwald's place, said Harry. Do you think you could do that for us? As Creature nodded and got to his feet, Harry had a sudden inspiration. He pulled out Hagrid's purse and took out the fake Horcrux, the substitute locket in which Regulus had placed the note to Voldemort. Creature, I'd like you to have this, he said, pressing the locket into the elf's hand. This belonged to Regulus, and I'm sure he'd want you to have it, as a token of gratitude, of what you... Overkill, mate, said Ron as the elf took the one took one look at the locket and let out a howl of shock and misery and threw himself back onto the ground. It took them nearly half an hour to calm down Creature, who was so overcome to be presented with a black family heirloom for his very own that he was too weak at the knees to stand properly. When he finally, when finally he was able to totter a few steps, they all accompanied him to the cupboard, watched him tuck up the locket safely at the dirty blankets and assured him that they would make it protection their first priority while he was away. He then made two low, low bows to Harry and Ron, even gave a funny little spasm in Hermione's direction that might have been an attempt at a respectful salute before disapparating with the usual crack. Yeah, man. And um, so now we see there's definitely been a backstory on Creature a little bit. And um, you find out a lot here. You really do. So, first of all, you have that massive full circle moment where we mentioned, you know, there was that locket in Order of the Phoenix, and we said that, that was going to come up much later on. So, finally, we're there. And now you're starting to find out how that locket got there. Um, and you find out all this information on. We always kept hearing, you know, Regulus like turned bad and then he was murdered by Voldemort himself and all this stuff. And now you find out all that was just rumors that were going around. No one truly knew exactly what happened except for the one elf that's been there the whole time and no one even bothered to ask anything. Well, he wasn't allowed um, to tell him anyways. He told him not to tell. So he could like even someone that did ask creature, he couldn't tell. Them. Yeah. Yeah, because I guess he wasn't Harry's at the time. Correct. Well, Sirius could add. Right, but like Sirius, <laughs> Sirius yeah, like, they were, like Hermione was saying, Sirius didn't even treat him like a like a being. Like Sirius had no love for creature at all. Yeah. Yeah, Sirius didn't care. So now, yeah, you're finding out like how the locket got replaced and um, why all that work that they did in the cave uh, with Dumbledore, where they thought, you know, him and Harry were going through all this work, drinking that potion. Uh, for the locket and then all of it was just in vain um just a little bit about a little bit of that backstory on regulus um a little bit where it talks about on pottermore basically what inspired him to turn against voldemort was he saw just like how it mentions in the book here but he was watching like the torture of creature having to drink the potion and that's when he decided you know like he was going to turn on voldemort but um, in Pottermore, it actually even describes like when Regulus fell in the water, he basically gets eaten by the Inferi. Like, talk about a way to go out. Like, that's, yeah. I mean, he definitely left his mark and did what he needed to do, but shows he definitely has at least a morale side to it. Um, but now you're now, and then now Creature, um, once again, just like in the last book, um, and in, in the Order of the Phoenix, and you know him and dobby have really played these significant roles here so now you have creature that's going to go on this big mission uh for harry 
uh, to hopefully get some headway here with these Horcruxes. Um, yeah, what do you think about that chapter, man? Well, there was just two big takeaways, honestly. They all boiled down to these two points. We find out who R.A.B. is, and we learn about what happened to the real Locket. Those are the two biggest things that are really a takeaway from that chapter. Um, it's kind of weird that, that you mentioned that about um, the Inferi eating Regulus, because in this book, it actually contradicts that later on, because it says that the Inferi dragged him underwater, and he became a new guardian for the Locket. Um, like, you know, he, he well, okay, I guess the, they the, didn't eat his body, I guess. <laughs> Or yeah, they just dragged him underwater until he died under the water. Yeah. Yeah. But, but so, um, yeah, so, but I guess, yeah, yeah but, I get, I mean, he's definitely not alive anymore, I would say. Yeah, he is not. He is now a new guardian for yeah. the, the locket, or the cave, I should say, for that little, that goblet potion. Mm-hmm. But yeah, those are the two big takeaways, man. There's really nothing more to glean from it, but there's super important information, like, now we know for a fact who R.A.B. is. It's, it's set in stone, and we learned about what happened to Real Lockett. That was, that's the biggest, the biggest things about it, and that's, that's kind of big. And that kind of brings us to our final chapter that we're going to cover today, uh, Chapter 11, which is The Bribe. And this is kind of cool. Uh, did you have any last things you wanted to say about the last chapter before we dive into Chapter 11, or you want me to just dive right on into it? That's it, man. Yeah, go ahead and dive on into it. For sure. It. Yeah, this is a pretty big one, 100%. too. 100%. So I only got, like, three bullet points. So I'm actually just going to th- say my three bullet points, then tackle the remainder of the chapter, to be honest. So the first thing at page 201, uh, I thought it was nice that Harry, like, had some belief in Creature that he was going to be able to find Mundungus pretty quickly. But actually, turns out Mundungus is, is a little more slippery than we had first anticipated. Like, Harry thought he was going to be back within hours with Mundungus and... That wasn't the case. Uh, page 202. Uh, well, there's two Death Eaters that were stalking the square outside. So it's like they kind of have an idea of where Harry is, but they can't do anything about it because they are not, they're not secret keepers. And apparently, as of right now, it seems as if Mad-Eye Moody has kept, like, been able to stop Snape from disclosing the location. Or maybe there's another reason why. Snape has not disclosed the location. No spoilers. But uh, anyways, Hermione tells them that the Death Eaters know Harry owns the house because wizarding wills are actually examined by the Ministry and Voldemort's overtaken the Ministry. So that's how they know that this house belongs to Harry now because they have full control of that Ministry of Magic. And then the big shocker here where I'll just say what happens and I'll start reading. Straight up, Professor Lupin arrives at Grimwald Place. He just shows up out of nowhere. And this is interesting because remember what Ron's dad had said, like, hey, don't contact us. We're being watched. So, and remember, the Death Eaters were just outside the door, but they were just talking about it. And all of a sudden, someone arrives at the door, and it ends up being being Lupin. And in page 205, Lupin does actually confirm that Harry does not have the trace on him, but he is very concerned with how the Death Eaters found them at Tottenham Court Road. So... From there, I'm going to go ahead and say, tell us what happened after he left through the remainder of this chapter. So Ron is asking Lupin, tell us what happened after we left. We haven't heard a thing since Ron's dad told us the family was safe. Well, Kingsley saved us, said Lupin. Thanks to his warning, most of the wedding guests were able to separate before they arrived. Were they Death Eaters or Ministry people, interjected Hermione. A mixture, but to all intents and purposes, they're the same thing now, said Lupin. There are about a dozen of them. But they didn't know you were there, Harry. Arthur heard a rumor that they tried to torture your whereabouts out of Scrimmageor, 
before they killed him. If it is true, he didn't give you away. Harry looked at Ron and Hermione. Their expressions reflected the mingled shock and gratitude he felt. He had never liked Scrimmageor much, but if what Lupin said was true, the man's final act had been to try and protect Harry. The Death Eaters searched the burrow from top to bottom, Lupin went on. They found the ghoul, but didn't want to get too close. Then they interrogated those of us who remained for hours. They were trying to get information on you, Harry, but of course, nobody apart from the Order knew that you had even been there. At the same time they were smashing up the wedding, more Death Eaters were forcing their way into every Order-connected houses in the country. No deaths, he added quickly, forestalling the question, but they were rough. They burned down Daedalus Diggle's house, but as you know, he wasn't there. They used the Cruciatus curse on Tonks' family, again, trying to find out where you went after you visited them. They're all right, shaken, obviously, but otherwise okay. The Death Eaters got through all of those protective charms. Harry asked, remembering how, how effective these had been on the night he crashed into Tonks' parents' garden. We've got to realize, Harry, is that the Death Eaters have got the full might of the Ministry on their side now, said Lupin. They've got the power to perform brutal spells without fear of identification or arrest. They managed to penetrate every defensive spell he cast against them, and once inside, they were completely open about why they'd come. And they're bothering to give an excuse for torturing Harry's whereabouts out of people? Asked Hermione in an edge to her voice. Well, said Lupin, he hesitated. Then he pulled out a folded copy of the Daily Prophet. Here, he said, pushing it across the table to Harry. You'll know sooner or later. That's their pretext for going after you. Harry smoothed out the paper. A huge photograph of his own face filled the front page. He read the headline over it. Wanted for questioning about the death of Albus Dumbledore. Ron and Hermione gave roars of outrage, but Harry said nothing. He pushed the newspaper away. He did not want to read any more. He knew what it would say. Nobody but those who had been at the top of the tower when Dumbledore died knew who had really killed him. And as Rita Skeeter had already told the Wizarding World, Harry had been seen running from the place moments after Dumbledore had fallen. I'm sorry, Harry, Lupin said. So Death Eaters have taken over the Daily Prophet too? Hermione added furiously. Lupin nodded. But surely people realize what's going on. The coop has been smooth and virtually silent, said Lupin. The official version of Scrimgeour's murders is that he resigned. He's been replaced by Pious Thickness, who is under the Imperious Curse. Why didn't Voldemort declare himself Minister of Magic, asked Ron. Lupin laughed. He doesn't need to, Ron. Effectively, he is the Minister. But why should he sit behind a desk at the Ministry? His puppet Thickness is taking care of everyday business, leaving Voldemort free to extend his power beyond the Ministry. Naturally, many people have deduced what has happened. There has been such a dramatic change in the Ministry policy in the last few days, and many are whispering that Voldemort must be behind it. However, that is the point. They whisper. They daren't confide into each other, not knowing whom to trust. They are scared to speak out in case their suspicions are true and their families are targeted. Yes, Voldemort is playing a very clever game. Declaring himself might have provoked open rebellion. Remaining masked has created confusion, uncertainty, and fear. And this dramatic change in Ministry policy, said Harry, involves warning the Wizarding World against me instead of Voldemort? Well, that's certainly part of it, said Lupin, and it's a masterstroke. Now that Dumbledore is dead, you, the boy who lived, were sure to be the symbol and rallying point for any resistance to Voldemort. But by suggesting that you had a hand in the old hero's death, Voldemort has not only set a price upon your head, but sown doubt and fear amongst many who would have defended you. Meanwhile, the Ministry has started moving against Muggleborns. Lupin pointed at the Daily Prophet. Look at page two. Hermione turned the pages with the same expression of distaste she had worn when handling secrets of the darkest art. Muggleborn register, she read aloud. The Ministry of Magic is undertaking a survey of so-called Muggleborns 
to better understand how they came to possess magical secrets. Recent research undertaken by the Department of Mysteries reveals that magic can only be passed from person to person when wizards reproduce. Where no proven wizarding ancestry exists, therefore, the so-called Muggleborn is likely to have obtained magical power by theft or force. The Ministry is determined to root out such usurpers of magical power, and to this end has issued an invitation to every so-called Muggleborn to present themselves for interview by the newly appointed Muggleborn Registration Commission. People won't let this happen, said Ron. It is happening, Ron, said Lupin. Muggleborns are being rounded up as we speak. But how are we supposed to have stolen magic? It's mental. If you could steal magic, there wouldn't be any squibs, would there? I know, said Lupin. Nevertheless, unless you can prove that you have at least one close wizarding relative, you are now deemed to have obtained your magical power illegally and must suffer the punishment. Ron glanced at Hermione and then said, What if purebloods and halfbloods swear a Muggleborn is part of their family? I'll tell everyone Hermione's my cousin. Hermione covered Ron's hand with hers and squeezed it. Thank you, Ron, but I couldn't let you. You won't have a choice, said Ron, fiercely gripping her hand back. I'll teach you my family tree so you can answer questions on it. Hermione gave a shaky laugh. Ron, as we're on the run with Harry Potter, the most wanted person in the country, I don't think it matters. If I was going back to school, it would be different. What's Voldemort planning for Hogwarts, she asked Lupin. Attendance is now compulsory for every young witch and wizard, he replied. That was announced yesterday. It's a change, because it was never obligatory before. Of course, nearly every witch and wizard in Britain has been educated at Hogwarts, but their parents had the right to teach them at home or send them abroad if they preferred. This way, Voldemort will have the whole wizarding population under his eye from a young age. And it's also another way of weeding out Muggleborns, because students have been given blood status, meaning they have, meaning that they have proven to the ministry that they are wizard descent before they are allowed to attend. Harry felt sickened and angry. At this moment, Excited 11-year-olds be poring over stacks of newly purchased spellbooks, unaware that they would never see Hogwarts. Perhaps never see their families again, either. It's... it's... he muttered, struggling to find the words that did justice to the horror of this thought. And Lupin said quietly, I know. Lupin hesitated. I'll understand if you can't confirm this, Harry, but the Order is under the impression that Dumbledore left you a mission. He did, Harry replied, and Ron and Hermione are in on it, and they're coming with me. Can you confide in me what the mission is? Harry looked into to the prematurely lined face, framed in thick but graying hair, and wished that he could return a different answer. I can't, Remus. I'm sorry. If Dumbledore didn't tell you, I don't think I can. I thought you'd say that, said Lupin, looking disappointed. But I still might have be some use to you. You know what I am and what I can do. I could come with you to provide protection. There would be no need to tell me exactly what you were up to. Harry hesitated. It was a very tempting offer, though how they would be able to keep their mission secret from Lupin if he were with them all the time he could not imagine. Hermione, however, looked puzzled. But what about Tonks? she asked. What about her? said Lupin. Well, said Hermione frowning, you're married. How does she feel about you going away with us? Tonks would be perfectly safe, said Lupin. She'll be at her parents' house. There was something strange in Lupin's tone. It was almost cold. There was also something odd in the idea of Tonks remaining hidden at her parents' house. She was, after all, a member of the Order of the Phoenix, and, as far as Harry knew, was likely to want to be in the thick of the action. Remus, said Hermione tentatively, is everything all right? You know, between you and... Everything is fine, thank you, said Lupin pointedly. Hermione turned pink. 
There was another pause, an awkward and embarrassed one, and Lupin said with an air of forcing himself to admit something unpleasant, Tonks is going to have a baby. Oh, how wonderful, squeaked Hermione. Excellent, said Ron enthusiastically. Congratulations, said Harry. Lupin gave an artificial smile that was more like a grimace, then said, So, do you accept my offer? Will three become four? I cannot believe that Dumbledore would have disapproved. He appointed me your defense against a dark arts teacher, after all, and I must tell you that I believe that we are facing magic many of us have never encountered or imagined. Ron and Hermione both looked at Harry. Just, just to be clear, he said, you want to leave Tonks at her parents' house and come away with us. She'll be perfectly safe there. They'll look after her, said Lupin. He spoke with a finality boring he spoke with a finality bordering on indifference. Harry, I'm sure James would have wanted me to stick with you. Well, I'm not, said Harry slowly. I'm pretty sure my father would have wanted to know why you aren't sticking with your own kid, actually. Lupin's face drained of color. The temperature in the room might have dropped ten degrees. Ron stared around the room as though he had been bidden to memorize it while Hermione's eyes swiveled backwards and forwards from Harry to Lupin. You don't understand, said Lupin at last. Explain then, said Harry. Lupin swallowed. I, I made a grave mistake in marrying Tonks. I did it against my better judgment and I have regretted it very much ever since. I see, said Harry, so you're just going to dump her and the kid and run off with us. Lupin sprang to his feet, his chair toppled backwards, and he glared at them so fiercely that Harry saw for the first time ever the shadow of a wolf upon his human face. Don't you understand what I've done to my wife and my unborn child? I should never have married her. I've made her an outcast. Lupin kicked aside the chair that he had overturned. You have only ever seen me amongst the Order or under Dumbledore's protection at Hogwarts. You don't know how much the Wizarding World sees creatures like me. When they know of my affliction, they can barely talk to me. Don't you see what I've done? Even her own family is disgusted by our marriage. What parents would want their only daughter to marry a werewolf? And the child? The child? Lupin actually seized handfuls of his own hair. He looked quite deranged. My kind don't usually breed. It will be like me. I am convinced of it. How can I forgive myself when I knowingly risk passing on my own condition to an innocent child? And if by some miracle it is not like me... And then it will be off. It will be better off a hundred times so without a father of whom it must always be ashamed. Remus, whispered Hermione, tears in her eyes. Don't say that. How could any child be ashamed of you? Oh, I don't know, Hermione, said Harry. I'd be pretty ashamed of him. Harry did not know where his rage was coming from, but it had, been, it had propelled him to his feet too. Lupin looked as though Harry had just hit him. If the new regime thinks Muggleborns are bad, Harry said. What will they do to a half-werewolf whose father is in the Order? My father died trying to protect my mother and me. And you reckon he'd tell you to abandon your kid to go on an adventure with us? How, how dare you, said Lupin. This is not about a desire for danger or personal glory. How dare you suggest such a... I think you're feeling a bit of a daredevil. You fancy stepping into Sirius's shoes. Harry, no! Hermione begged him, but he continued to glare into Lupin's livid face. I'd never have believed this, Harry said. The man who taught me to fight Dementors. A coward. Lupin drew his wand so fast that Harry barely had time and reached for his own. There was a loud bang and he felt himself flying backwards as if punched. He slammed it to the kitchen wall and slid to the floor. He glimpsed the tail of Lupin's cloak disappearing around the door. Remus! Remus, come back! Hermione cried, but Lupin did not respond. A moment later, they heard the front door slam. Harry! wailed Hermione. How could you? It was easy said Harry. He stood up. He could feel a lump swelling where his head hit the wall. 
He was still so full of anger, he was shaking. Don't look at me like that, he snapped at Hermione. Don't you start on her, snarled Ron. No, no, we mustn't fight, said Hermione, launching herself between them. You shouldn't have said that stuff to Lupin, Ron told Harry. He had it coming to him, said Harry. Broken images were racing each other through his mind. Sirius, falling through the veil. Dumbledore, suspended, broken in midair, in a flash of green light. And his mother's voice, begging for mercy. Parents, said Harry, shouldn't leave their kids. Unless, unless they've got to. Harry, said Hermione, stretching out a consoling hand. But he shrugged it off and walked away. His eyes on the fire Hermione had conjured. He once spoken to Lupin out of that fireplace, seeking reassurance about James, and Lupin had consoled him. Now Lupin's tortured white face seemed to swim in the air before him. He felt a sickening surge of remorse. Neither Ron nor Hermione spoke, but Harry felt sure that they were looking at each other behind his back, communicating silently. He turned around and caught them, turning hurriedly away from each other. I know I shouldn't have called him a coward. No, you shouldn't, said Ron at once, but he's acting like one. All the same, said Hermione, I know said Harry, but if it makes him go back to Tonks, it'll be worth it, won't it? He cannot keep the plea out of his voice. Hermione looked sympathetic, Ron uncertain. Harry looked down at his feet, thinking of his father. Would James have backed Harry in what he had said to Lupin, or would he have been angry at how his son treated an old friend? The silent kitchen seemed to hum with the shock of his recent scene, and with Ron and Hermione's unspoken reproaches, the daily prophet Lupin had brought was still lying open on the table. Harry's own face staring up at the ceiling from the front page. He walked over to it and sat down, opened the paper at random, and pretended to read. He couldn't take in the words. His mind was still too full of the encounter with Lupin. He was sure that Ron and Hermione had resumed their silent communications on either side of the prophet. He turned the page loudly, and Dumbledore's name leapt out at him. It was a moment or two before he took in the meaning of the photograph, which showed a family group. Beneath the photograph were the words, The Dumbledore family, left to right. Albus? Percival, holding newborn Ariana, Kendra, and Aberforth. His attention caught, Harry examined the picture more carefully. Dumbledore's father, Percival, was a good-looking man with eyes that seemed to twinkle even this, in this old, faded photograph. The baby, Ariana, was little longer than a loaf of bread and no more distinctive-looking. The mother, Kendra, had jet-black hair, pulled into a high bun. Her face had a carved quality about it. Harry thought of photos of Native Americans he's seen as he studied her dark eyes, high cheekbones, and straight nose, formerly composed above a high-necked silk gown. Albus and Aberforth wore matching lacy collar jackets and had identical shoulder-length hairstyles. Albus looked several years older, but otherwise the two boys looked very alike, for this was before Albus's nose had been broken and before he started wearing glasses. The family looked quite happy and normal, smiling serenely out of the newspaper. Baby Ariana's arm waved vaguely out of her shawl. Harry looked at the picture and saw the headline, Exclusive Extracts from the Upcoming Biography of Albus Dumbledore by Rita Skeeter. Thinking it could hardly make him feel any worse than he already did, Harry began to read. Proud and haughty Kendra Dumbledore could not bear to remain in the mold on the wold after her husband's Percival's well-publicized arrest and imprisonment in Azkaban. She therefore decided to uproot the family and relocate to Godric's Hollow, the village that was later to gain fame as the scene of Harry Potter's strange escape from you-know-who. Like Mold on the Wald, Godric's Hollow was a home to a number of wizarding families, but as Kendra knew none of them, she would be spared the curiosity about her husband's crime she had faced in her former village. By repeatedly rebuffing the friendly advances of her new wizarding neighbors, she soon ensured that her family was left well alone. Slammed the door in my face when I came around to welcome her with a batch of homemade cauldron cakes, says Bathilda Bagshot. The first year 
they were there, I only ever saw the two boys. Wouldn't have known there was a daughter if I hadn't been picking plangentines by moonlight the winter after they moved in and saw Kendra leading Ariana out into the back garden. She walked her once around the lawn, keeping a firm grip on her, then took her back inside. I didn't know what to make of it. Seems that Kendra thought the move to Godric's Hollow was a perfect opportunity to hide Ariana once and for all, something she had probably been planning for years. The timing was significant. Ariana was barely seven years old when she vanished from sight, and seven is the age by which most experts agree magic will have revealed itself if present. Nobody now alive remembers Ariana ever demonstrating even the slightest sign of magical ability. It seems clear, therefore, that Kendra made a decision to hide her daughter's existence rather than suffer the same, suffer the shame of admitting she had produced a squib. Moving away from the friends and neighbors who knew Ariana would, of course, make imprisoning her all the easier. The tiny number of people who henceforth knew of Ariana's existence could be counted upon to keep the secret, including her two brothers who deflected awkward questions with the answer their mothers had taught them. My sister is too frail for school. Next week, Albus Dumbledore at Hogwarts, the prize and the pretense. Harry had been wrong. What he had read had indeed made him feel worse. He looked back at the old photograph of the apparently happy family. Was it true? How could he find out? He wanted to go to Galjik's Hollow. Even if Bathilda was in no fit state to talk to him, he wanted to visit the place where he and Dumbledore had both lost loved ones. He was in the process of lowering the newspaper to ask Ron and Hermione's opinion when a deafening crack echoed around the kitchen. And for the first time in three days, Harry had forgotten all about Creature. His immediate thought was that Lupin had burst back into the room and for a split second he did not take in the mass of struggling limbs that had appeared out of thin air right beside his chair. He hurried to his feet as Creature disentangled himself and bowing low to Harry, croaked, Creature has returned with the thief, Mundungus Fletcher, Master. Mundungus scrambled up and pulled out his wand. Hermione, however, was too quick for him. Expel the Armus! Mundungus' wand soared in the air and Hermione caught it. Wild-eyed, Mundungus dived for the stairs. Ron Rugby tackled him and Mundungus hit the stone floor with a muffled crunch. What? He bellowed, writhing in his attempts to free himself from Ron's grip. What have I done? Send a bleeding house off on me. What are you playing at? What have I done? Let me go. Let me go or... You're not in much of a position to make threats, said Harry. He threw aside the newspaper, crossed the kitchen in a few strides, and dropped to his knees beside Mundungus, who stopped struggling and looked terrified. Ron got up panting and watched as Harry pointed his wand deliberately at Mundungus's nose. Mundungus stank of stale sweat and tobacco smoke. His hair was matted and his robes stained. Creature apologizes for the delay in bringing in the thief, master. Croaked the elf, Fletcher knows how to avoid capture, has many hidey holes and accomplices. Nevertheless, Creature cornered the thief in the end. You've done really well, Creature, and the elf bowed low. Right, we've got a few questions for you, Harry told Mundungus, who shouted at once. I panicked, okay? I never wanted to come along, no offense, mate, but I never volunteered to die for you. And that was bleeding, you know who, coming flying at me. Anyone would have got out of there. I said all along I didn't want to do it. Well, for your information, none of the rest of us disapparated, said Hermione. We're a bunch of bleeding heroes then, aren't you? But I never pretended I was up for killing myself. We're not interested in why you ran out on Mad-Eye, said Harry, moving his wand a little closer to Mundungus's baggy bloodshot eyes. We already knew you were a bit of unreliable scum. Well then, why the hell am I being hunted down by house elves? Or is this about them goblets again? I don't have anything left, or you can have them. It's not about the goblets either, although you're getting warmer, said Harry. Shut up and listen. It felt wonderful to have something to do. Someone of whom he could demand some small portion of truth. Harry's wand was now so close to the bridge of Mundungus's nose that Mundungus has gone cross-eyed trying to keep it in view. When you cleaned out of this house, when you clean this house out of anything valuable, Harry began, 
but Mundungus interrupted him once more. Sirius never cared about any of the junk. There was, a, <laughs> there was the sound of pattering feet, a blaze of shining copper, an echoing clang, and a shriek of agony. The creature had taken a run at Mundungus and hit him over the head with a saucepan. Call him off! Call him off! He should be locked up! Screamed Mundungus, cowering as Creature raised the heavy bottom pan again. Creature, no, shouted Harry. Creature's thin arm trembled with the weight of the pan still held aloft. Perhaps just one more, Master Harry? For luck? Ron laughed. We, we need him conscious, Creature, but if he needs persuading, you can do the honors, said Harry. Thank you very much, Master, said Creature with a bow, and he retreated a short distance, his great pale eyes still fixed upon Mundungus with loathing. When you stripped this house of all the valuables you could find, Harry began again, you took a bunch of stuff from the kitchen cupboard. There was a locket there. Harry's mouth was suddenly dry. He could sense Ron and Hermione's tension and excitement too. What did you do with it? Why? asked Mundungus. Is it valuable? You still got it, cried Hermione. No, he hasn't, said Ron shrewdly. He's wondering whether he should have asked more money for it. More? said Mundungus. That, would have been an eff that wouldn't have been effing difficult. Bleeding gave it away, didn't I? No choice. What do you mean? I was selling in Diagon Alley, and she came up to me and asked if I have a license for trading in magical artifacts. The bleeding snoop. She was going to find me, but she took a fancy to the locket and told me she'd take it and let me off that time and to think myself lucky. Who was this woman? Asked Harry. Oh, no, some ministry hag. Mundungus considered for a moment, brow wrinkled. Little woman, bow on top of her head. He frowned and then added, Looked like a toad. Harry dropped his wand. It hit Mundungus on the nose and shot red sparks into his eyebrows, which ignited. Aguamenti! screamed Hermione, and a jet of water streamed from her wand, engulfing a spluttering and choking Mundungus. Harry looked up and saw his own shock reflected in Ron and Hermione's faces. The scars on the back of his right hand seemed to be tingling again. And that is the end of the chapters that we will tackle today, the end of chapter 11. So since I just kind of read that whole thing, what are some takeaways that you brought from that chapter? We can't get rid of the toad. <laughs> <laughs> we thought she was gone from the funeral, man. Just to clear this up too real quick. Yeah, you were you were right about uh, Regulus being dragged under the water. I even wrote it in the notes. It said, and watch the Inferi pull Regulus into the water. I just figured... It would be a lot better if they ate his body because it would be a lot more gruesome and more fun to read. <laughs> but anyways, back for the chat. <laughs> I imagined in theory eating <laughs> like hungry zombies, but apparently J.K. Rowling doesn't think that's cool. Well, if I edited it, it would have been a little bit better. Okay, back to where we were. <laughs> Some key takeaways here. So... Um, first thing, kind of, uh, you know, starting out here, Lupin's been a, being a bit of an ass, not wanting to step up to the plate, trying to pull the old runner, <laughs> trying to run for the hills, go hang out with Harry, kick back, get some drinks at Godric's Hollow, maybe some fire mead, while Lupin, why Donk's over there is having to be the hard-working mother that she is her patronus is changing and lupin just wants to get drinks with the boys where hermione serves them some mead and then he got here and then uh so you know he storms out 
being a little bitch, finally you have him. Uh, I think it's very interesting to see finally, like it describes as like, you see the shadow of the werewolf, like for the first time, like on Lupin, like it almost makes you wonder, like, is he like under the imperious curse? Like what's going on here? It's a little tricky. You know, he was kind of like near those death eaters at the front of the house. Something kind of funny is going on here. Dirty Lupin over here trying to make bail. Trying to run for the hills, howl at the moon. And then we got, uh, we're finally finding a little bit more about like the rumors and kind of what happened with Ariana. So, uh, very interesting to hear how you know, Dumbledore and Aberforth had a sister this whole time we've never heard about. Um, and now, of course, just ending out the whole thing, like I said, you know, that full circle moment, uh, which they definitely didn't show enough in the films, but <laughs> I will not tell lies. <laughs> I must not tell lies. Like, all this is coming full circle, and I thought we got rid of her the first time over at with the centaurs in the forbidden forest little did we know we just saw our last book at the end of the funeral and here she comes again so uh those are kind of the key takeaways i had what about yourself for me uh my key takeaway is i, I almost came away with a question more than i came away with like other stuff too like what would have happened what would have what would have been the outcome if they had accepted lupin's help like what if they're like all right lupin you can come with us like I wonder, like I kind of wonder how that would have all worked out. Like, would they have, like, would certain things have happened? You know, not to get anything away later. I'll just say the words like when bandits start to make an appearance here. I wonder if anything would have changed at all. You know, mm-hmm. like so it, it just kind of leaves me with some questions. Yeah. Like if Lupin was accepted on this journey, and they're like, yeah, you know what, we could use the expertise, the help from an adult instead of just three seventeen-year-olds trying to figure it out. You know, I, I just wonder what would have been different. But yeah, I just think it's cool how Harry kind of really put him in his place and said nah you're being a shitty dad like you suck like you're a coward bet you won't go back and take care of your kid and then lupin freaks out and leaves like hits harry with a spell knocks him against the wall and then bounces <laughs> out of the house so thought that was cool uh yeah we're, we're, we're learning more yeah. about the sister ariana of dumbledore's how you know it seems that she was hidden from the world we get we're learning more about dumbledore in the first like 11 chapters of this book than we ever heard about in all the rest of the books combined so yeah. it's very really interesting uh, other takeaway I have is creatures starting to come around and be like like happier with Harry where he's like sorry master Harry you know like it took me a long time but I got him for you then he smacked him with a saucepan on the head like Jim Dungus like so creatures instead of going from like hating loathing Harry Ron Hermione like wanting them to basically die to like starting a little bit coming around to enjoying like because they gave him Regulus's locket like now he's kind of mm-hmm. cool with them he even gave Harry like, like he gave Ron and Harry a deep bow and made like a little spasm jerk towards quote unquote the mudblood of Hermione who he's got he's got all these <laughs> issues against right so I think it's kind of cool that creatures yeah. starting to come around and then yeah as you said just to kind of close out Dolores Umbridge has a locket she's she's obviously we, we were probably gonna get come back to get her sometime anyways but uh, once we saw that she attended Dumbledore's funeral we knew that she was probably had a little role to play and she sure does she's got the locket so uh it's kind of like cool too because there's a little bit of foreshadow about how they questioned mundungus after he disapparated from mad-eye moody to dolores who and mad-eye moody and the locket there's like there's a correlation between all of it so yeah i'll leave that where it is but those are my big takeaways and 
that kind of pulls us in into our plot hole section, man. Do you have any good plot holes that you picked out? Yeah, like, I don't know why his body wasn't eaten. Like, I feel like that should have happened when he was dragged below the lake. I'm just kidding. I really didn't have any big plot holes. Uh, not major ones. Yeah, I, I really didn't come up with any major plot holes here. I mean, even from the point of, you know, going from the wedding to where they were in the coffee shop. Like, everything seemed like it was pretty much pretty well put together. Um, I mean, I guess you can kind of question, like, like how lupin like just randomly shows up and knows they're at grimwald's place like maybe that's a question there but i didn't have any too big of problems what about you i've got three um and it's like the, i wouldn't say that they're terribly crazy to the storyline but definitely a little bit of some discrepancies so if we go all the way back to the very very beginning of this book in page 13 remember when harry cut his finger on that mirror right and this is i actually have the quote Last paragraph on page 13. It was stupid, pointless, irritating beyond belief that he still had four days left of being unable to perform magic. That was the day they transported Harry from Privet Drive, right? So he still had four days of being unable to perform magic on the day they took him from Privet Drive. But on page 86, after they lost Mad-Eye Moody, the very first sentence on page 86 states, the shock of Mad-Eye hung over the house in the days... That followed. Harry kept expecting to see him stumping through the back door like the other order members who passed in and out to relay news. Why is that important? Is because, like, where am I going with this? Well, on page 87, the very next page from that quote, it reads and states, the trace will break on the 31st, said Harry. That means I only need to stay here at the borough four more days. So how was it only four days back in chapter two and now it's, Four days again and the days that followed Mad-Eye Moody's death. Where are these days going? <laughs> like, that makes no sense. There was four days back in chapter two and all of a sudden still four days in the quote-unquote where it says the first sentence, the days that followed Mad-Eye Moody's death. So there should be, like, the days don't line up. It doesn't make sense. I mean, maybe it was just like saying in the days that followed. <laughs> like... This is what resonated, like, why they were gone. Like, maybe it was saying that. That's well, that's the, the thing, though, still. I mean, if I it says say. in the days that followed, then they're talking about up to where they are now. And the thing, it's still, the days would still have had to pass. You know, the state, the days still would have had to go on from when, yeah. he, like, they lost Mad-Eye Moody. Because it said the order would come in and out. So, like, you know, like, it, the time has passed since the death. But still, it's only still four days. It's not possible. So, that was one of the things yeah, I had there. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. The second sense. one, this is more of like, I've got a question. I can't fully confidently say this is a plot hole. And the only reason why I bring this up is because I brought this up earlier today when Dumbledore, he put that full body bind curse on Harry when the Death Eaters attacked him at the astronomy tower, right? He just made sure Harry couldn't move. Then when Snape killed Dumbledore, the spell released, right? Am I correct in saying that? So yeah, on page right. 170 here in, in this book, how could have Mad-Eye Moody's jinxes and curses still be in effect if Moody died? So, you know, when he came in, like, to Grimald Place and, like, they had the Dumbledore rise up and dust at them and, like, the tongue-tied thing that make their like, makes their tongue go back into their throat? Tongue-tied yeah, right? coffee. So my question is, <laughs> yeah. like, if Mad-Eye like, Mad Moody's dead, so how is his curses still in effect? Don't the curses break 
that you perform once you die. Because that's what happened to Dumbledore. The curse broke upon Harry when Dumbledore died. So, I don't know. Got a question about that. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that one. Maybe some curses do, some curses don't. Yes, that's the thing. That's, that's like I said, I can't, <laughs> I no I can't idea, fully man. call that that's a plot a hole. Question. I need that explained to me how Dumbledore's curse broke when Dumbledore died, but when Mad-Eye died, apparently he still has the trap set for Snape. That still work. I don't get it. But then this is the very last one, and there's really no mistake in this. This is just really silly. And this kind of does mess with the plot line. Just a touch. Nothing crazy. But on page 167, this is to do with your girl Hermione Granger, bro. So, I'll start with what Harry said. when they Remember in Tottenham Court when they dis, like they uh, stunned the Death Eaters and they were wondering what to do with them? So, it's quoted here on page 167. We just need to wipe their memories, said Harry. It's better like that. It'll throw them off the scent. If we killed them, it'd be obvious we were here. You're the boss, said Ron, sounding profoundly relieved. But I've never done a memory charm. Nor have I, said Hermione, but I know the theory. Oh, really, Hermione, you've never performed a memory charm because literally 100 pages before that in page 96, quoting Hermione specifically, <laughs> I've she also, said she obliviated. Yeah, I, right. I have also modified my parents' mm-hmm. memories so that they're convinced they're really called Wendell and Monica Wilkins. Assuming I survive our hunt for the Horcruxes, I'll find my mom and dad and lift the enchantment. So you really haven't performed a memory curse or you have? Which one is it, Hermione? Super conflicting. Literally says it in those yeah. quotes from the different ones. I had it quote, like word for word. So one of them's wrong. Either she didn't in the beginning you know, modify her parents' memories or she lied about saying that she never did when they were at Tottenham Court Road. So that's, that's the other one I have. So. Yeah, that was good. Anyways. By the way, just to clear this up, when I was thinking about Ollivander earlier, for some reason in my mind it triggered Chapter 5 at the end of The Fallen Warrior when I was thinking <laughs> about Harry's visions. I'm like, oh, we must be thinking about the Ollivander and the wand. But no, you're right. I was talking about, you know, you had Draco Malfoy and everyone there. <laughs> for some reason I kept thinking about that memory for a minute. And it threw it me was. off. But I knew that moment did happen, and that's because we talked about it last Sunday. Correct. <laughs> that's why. Correct. But it did happen, though. So technically, <laughs> I was still right. I was just talking about something that already has happened. Yeah. So I didn't give anything away. <laughs> so that's Correct. good. Uh, so just to clear that up there before we end today's episode. But, um, yeah, now to the cool section. You had a, a cool one, right? The interesting yeah, the fact you said you, you, had, you wanted to mention. Well, did you did you have one? Because if you have one, I might. Because if you because I thought that you said you didn't anymore, just because it, it lined up with the uh, Regulus's locket, or did you do a different one on top of that? Oh, I have a different one. It's super quick oh. though. Oh yeah, no, yeah, do yours and I'll do mine. And we'll, we'll close out for sure. Okay, mine's really quick. It's on Kingsley Shacklebolt's Patronus. So you know, a Lynx Patronus is like a big cat. If you have a Lynx Patronus, so they're not often found. But it's for individuals that are very individualistic and eccentric. And it's common, ironically, a very common Patronus of the Ravenclaw house. So maybe that's why they kicked me out. I got a grass snake. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, and that's it, man. And uh, back over to you. Awesome. My interesting fact is on Tottenham Court Road. So fun fact, Tottenham Court Road is actually a real street in London. It's known for its commercial shopping, particularly for consumer electronics. 
So in addition to not only being featured in Harry Potter and Deathly Hallows, it's also been featured in other published works uh, in Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway, George Bernard's uh, Pygmalion, Ian McEwan's Saturday, and several of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes stories. So that's just a little bit of backstory on Tottenham Court Road. So thought that was a little interesting. Yeah, so that thing is actually... A real life street where you can purchase like electronics is what they're really known for. You guys can go to Tottenham Court Road right now if you want to buy a ticket to London. Go out there and explore where they escaped the wedding. And on top of that, if you want to buy some cool electronics, you can. And like like I said, this that road specifically has been in a lot of published works that we just mentioned. So just some cool things there. And that's my interesting fact. That's cool, man. I would love to like take a photo there. Like I was walking across the road, like the Beatles Abbey Road. <laughs> like yeah. Tottenham Court. <laughs> yeah. Definitely, man. No, it's good stuff, man. Um, yeah, you want to... Uh, this has been an awesome, uh, really detailed episode. Really building a for lot sure. for like what we're getting into. Um, I think, especially next episode, that's when we're really going to get into a lot of kind of the action and, and that sort of stuff. And it, it's pretty... I mean, even like for building a lot of detail... We still had a lot of action-packed yep. stuff. Like, I mean, you had the wedding and leaving the wedding, getting to Grimwald's place. Now you had this argument with Lupin. Um, and then now Creature's coming yeah. around. So it's definitely a lot of big detail here. Deathly Hallows does not disappoint. There's never a dull moment in this book. For sure. I'm with you 100%. On top of that, we learn about the locket, the real the real story behind it, which is like was a big climax of last book of you know them going out to the cave. So... That was really cool too so i guess that it kind of closes up where we'll leave this off today i mean like we say at the end of all of our episodes uh you know if you liked what you heard today if you're new to the show please click like subscribe follow our channels on instagram at official ridiculous patronus we got a facebook fan page chase and josh factor fantasy you can follow our personal instagram accounts as well you got our brow 129 my own is jay nelly 83 so uh, any and you can find us anywhere you get your podcast guys so if you're uh Android users, you can find us on Google Play, Spotify. If you're iPhone users, you can find us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, our host site, Podbean, has been taking great care of us. They've made sure that we've stayed on their featured list for uh, the past eight months or so now. It's been quite a long time. <laughs> eight yeah, months man. or something like something that. Like, something like <laughs> wild. So, yeah, and on top of that, if you guys listen to podcasts in other obscure locations such as, you know, Pandora, uh, Amazon Music. You can find us, like I said, anywhere that you get your podcast from. But the fact that the the matter is that we're very appreciative of the fan base that we've built and you guys continuously checking in on us. And if you are new, welcome to the show. Everyone's welcome here at Chase and Josh Factor Fantasy. So, you know, this at this point in time, this has been episode two of our 10-part episode that will encompass the contents of Harry Potter and Deathly Hallows, both the novel and the films. And so we still got another eight episodes to go of just non-stop detail action fun moments mind-blowing instances it's going to be a lot of fun so did you want to say anything about the last moment before i go ahead and sign us off today i think you uh hit it right uh right on the head man well uh thanks again guys y'all are the shields that guard the realms of fantasy uh this uh last week actually was uh a year ago today that we saw uh, Daenerys die. So shout out to Game of Thrones. They're two years ago today. So their two-year anniversary was there that popped up. And once again, a reminder, what's going to be awesome is when we end this arc, we'll be ending on the 20th anniversary 
of Harry Potter, which there's always a reason why we do stuff here. Yeah. And uh, man, what a hell of a ride it has been for season one of Factor Fantasy. And it is not over yet. Uh, we are getting to the biggest climax of everything we've done this season. So every single show. And uh, man, it's, we, it's not over yet. Hold on tight. It's going off the rails. And we're getting to that peak moment. Um, I will say this has been a hell of a ride. And I'll let you go ahead and uh, close us out, Jay Nelly. For sure. I'm glad you mentioned Game of Thrones too. Because it just coincides with, if you guys have been paying attention or not, the new uh, House of Dragon has started filming officially. So uh, that's some cool stuff that's going to be coming in the future. And you know Chase and I are going to tackle that in the future too. So, But that's then. This is today. We're leaving you with that because you know this has been another <laughs> ridiculous production. Chase and Josh. Factor Fantasy. Signing, signing off. off.